This episode is brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions, my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin. And I have a few go-to products that I love from Rhino. The first one is the Performance Cream. I use that to keep my skin dry when I'm climbing in warm or humid conditions. It's a game changer, it makes a really big difference. And I love Performance because it keeps my skin dry without making it too dry. It doesn't crack, it doesn't get glassy. The Performance Cream keeps my hands from sweating but keeps my skin pliable, which is a really awesome combination. I also use the Repair Cream most evenings to help my skin heal between sessions on my bouldering projects or right now on my sport climbing projects here in Utah. So whether you have dry, glassy skin or sweaty skin and have trouble keeping chalk on your hands like I do, Rhino Skin Solutions has products that are designed just for you and your skin type. Check out my episode with founder Justin Brown, episode 22 of The Nugget, to learn more about which products are right for you and how to dial in your skin for an upcoming performance season. That's a super valuable episode if you want to try out Rhino products, episode 22 of The Nugget. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off and start taking better care of your precious skin today. This episode is also brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. One of the best things I ever did for my own climbing was to build a climbing wall in my garage. It solved so many challenges with my training. It was so easy to stick to a consistent training schedule. I always had really high quality sessions on my own wall without any distractions. I got to pick whatever music I wanted. I got to stay psyched and I got super strong the two winters that I climbed on that home wall. But it's a ton of work to build a home wall. First, you have to design the thing, then you have to build it, then you have to decide which holds you wanna order and order tons of holds and bolts, and then you have to set all the boulder problems and routes. Most of you don't have time to do all that. Luckily, the folks at Grasshopper Climbing designed the perfect solution. The Grasshopper board was designed to give you an entire climbing gym experience right in your home. And the best part is they did such a good job with the hold shaping and layout that the Grasshopper board will be right for you whether you are a beginner or you climb V15. It's so efficient, it's so good for training, and most importantly, it's so much fun to climb on. And this is brand new, folks. Grasshopper just announced the Pro Series of Holds. These are advanced holds, little in-cut crimps of all shapes and sizes to fill out the Grasshopper board. So if you're an advanced climber and you wanna get even more intensity out of your training sessions, the Pro Series is coming very, very soon. And I'll be talking more about that in the future. If you wanna learn more, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com or check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing. Check out their boards and reach out to their sales team to see which board solution is right for you. And be sure to tell them I sent you because the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, $500 off when you order a fully kitted out eight by 10 foot grasshopper board. Just tell them that you learned about the Grasshopper Board from the Nugget Climbing Podcast, and they'll give you $500 off or even more if you upgrade to a larger board. Again, that's grasshopperclimbing.com to check out the Grasshopper Board. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Matt Heiliger. Matt is a doctor of physical therapy 
and he is one of the most knowledgeable people I've ever talked to when it comes to climbing-related injuries and rehab. Matt is currently based in Red Lodge, Montana, and I got a chance to meet Matt in person and climb with him a few weekends in Ten Sleep, Wyoming. We recorded this about a month ago after a few weekends of climbing together, and Matt was super helpful in looking at my carpal tunnel syndrome. I've had carpal tunnel for a long time. I thought I had fixed it, and I had symptoms come back and kind of flare up over the course of my trip to Ten Sleep. And Matt was gracious enough to do some tests on me, do a full assessment, and it was fascinating. I was so impressed with his approach and his knowledge. I was really excited to have him on the podcast. So we did get quite technical in this one. We spent a fair bit of time talking specifically about Carpal Tunnel and what he learned from doing those tests and assessments on me. And I decided to include all that because I thought it was really fascinating and hopefully valuable for you guys to just hear how this guy thinks about injuries and how connected everything is in the body and how thorough and holistic he is in his approach. Matt also told some crazy stories in this conversation. So if you're not interested in the technical stuff, don't miss the eyeball story. Just scroll down to the nuggets, find the timestamp for the eyeball story. I made it super easy to find and make sure you listen to that story. It's about 15 minutes long and uh, I promise you won't regret it. All right, I think I'll let you guys discover the rest. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Matt Heiliger. Cool. The red buttons are on, Matt. So this is the beginning. This is the beginning. Okay, nice. What... You mentioned the mic being heavy. What do you think I should do? Do you think I should have mic stands in here? Uh, hmm. I don't know. Can I tell you in an hour? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's totally fair. How, I just don't how. know how I would do it. Like if they sat on the floor, then my situation would be really awkward. I could get ones that maybe clamp onto the counter, but there's only like an inch of Ooh, counter a little, like, sticking clamp out. Clamp and rotation. Yeah. yeah. I could see it being awkward. Yeah. Um, I kind of like the simplicity of the handheld, but. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I think, maybe I think three I can years. At least get an hour out of it, and then we might have to take like a, a shake. Out. Or I guess you I could, switch oh, hands. You switch. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> nice one hour per hand, <laughs> two hour limit on this podcast episode. Yeah. Maybe when I get to two hundred episodes, I'll get mic stands. Nice. Switch nice. things up a little bit. Um, yeah. How was your night in the cabin? Yeah. So upgraded from the ground, which uh, it was it was kind of comfortable, man. Um, has heat in there. Nice. I miss having a, a home on wheels, um, which I've had a, a bunch of different iterations over the years. But then we uh, we decided on the truck and like having the kids sleep on the ground and just going back to that for a couple of years. And I don't know, sleeping on a bed last night. After climbing was pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. I can't so. imagine doing, were you in a van before? Have you tried? Uh, it wasn't a van. We've had a truck back camper for, okay. that we had for a bunch of years. Um, How I've many kids do you have? Two. Yeah. So. That would be a And that's lot. the factor is just trying to figure out like what fits us all. And you've met both of our dogs now. And so we have like right. two, one very large dog, Malamute. And yeah. And then a medium sized lab, Loki and Ocho. Um, but yeah, I uh, 
I don't know what's next. We're gonna have to see if we stay in the country for a long time. We'll get get to all of this down the line, but mm-hmm. I think that's what we're kind of waiting to see. Um, but yeah, the ground is fine. We have this giant six person tent. Um, it was funny. I had to like really hunt down my backpacking tent so I didn't show up on my first trip down here and set up like this monster tent palace, big Agnes tent palace. Yeah, <laughs> which is so funny. You can like sleep in the middle of it. You can have a dance party in there. <laughs> <laughs> we should have done that. The thing is huge. Yeah, we do with our kids actually on, nice. on cold days. Yeah. So I've only seen you coming down here by yourself on your little solo climbing trips. How often do you get out with the whole family and do your kids, do they come along on climbing trips or do you go just camping with them? Yeah, yeah, both. both. Um, okay. You know, this year, well, we, we did a bunch of traveling and we spent some time in Spain and that was all um, using accommodations like Airbnb and some hotels. But um, yeah, when we're traveling in the US, we we do camp, just to camp. We spend maybe a uh, day a week where the whole family goes rock climbing. It kind of depends. Um, and the kids are the kids are into it to an extent. Like I think they get excited to go in the woods and build fairy houses. So I have, <laughs> I, have I have two daughters. Two daughters. Yeah, How five, old are they? five and eight. So nice. Eight year old Piper. She um, yeah leads Zephyr along the way with like fairy house construction and like that's the number one key factor is you know somewhat flat um, base area to the climb and then materials for fairy houses like they are scanning on our way in uh-huh. and if it's not adequate um that comes up really quickly Dad, this crag's not gonna work for us <laughs> yeah this totally doesn't work for us <laughs> um, that's cute but yeah it's a whole different adventure with the family but we do get out and uh yeah like right before i came down here piper asked if i'd take her out on thursday when i get back so nice yeah we're we're in a spot in Red Lodge where we've got a crag right down the road. It's perfect for the kids. It's got like moderates all the way across the wall and you can drop a rope from the top. So pretty easy just to take them out. Um, even just one parent going out. So nice. Yeah. Red Lodge, Montana. Red Lodge, Montana. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we went to a very small town. It's kind of funny how we circled back around to Red Lodge. Um, we decided to leave Bozeman a year ago and just uh, kind of, we sold everything and just set sail. And we, with Omicron and like the craziness last winter with trying to travel, we had to really hold up our plans to go to Spain. Um, yeah, the goal was to live a year in Spain. And we ended up spending the winter in the Tahoe area where my family's from, or where my family lives, I should say. And had a really fun winter there, skied a bunch and traveled to the east side a little bit and got out a fair bit. But we kind of circled around after Spain, realizing that we missed Montana. We just missed the wildness. Mm. And it was funny in Tahoe, like I love the Sierra. I grew up having those be my mountains, but we didn't see wildlife like at all. We, hmm. we saw a deer or two. And then like we started to count, like squirrels started counting as like major wildlife you'd see. <laughs> yeah. Which coming from Montana is really funny when you've got like moose and- You have a bear den on your property. <laughs> the bear den on our property. And <laughs> didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. That was actually in the Tetons. We lived, uh, okay. my wife and I lived in the yurt, in a yurt that we built in the Tetons for a bunch of years. And um, yeah, we had, what we discovered was a bear den after uh, a couple of years of living there, our, our dog uh, Malamute, different Malamute than this one, dug out a bear den and we kept losing her on the property. We kept being like, where the hell is she? We like built a fence and we thought it was a fence she couldn't get through. And it turns out she could get through it, but she also was just spending extended periods of time digging out and enjoying this like 
pretty significant room. It was probably like eight feet in diameter, dug out about four wow. feet below the ground. And <laughs> wow. I crawled in there one time and I was like, holy shit, this is like a bear palace. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, of dance parties in here. Yeah. And nothing happened in it for a very long time. And then we left for an extended period of time. This was actually during grad school. Uh, we kept it during grad school uh, when I went back for, for PT and, uh, we got back to the property and we had a friend visiting with a, a, I think it was a toddler, probably like a year and a half. And so they were really sensitive about wildlife. Mm -hmm. They asked us a bunch of questions before visiting and we're like, oh, do we tell them that there's like a bear <laughs> now living on the property? Because when we got back to the property, we, we saw this bear coming and going a bunch. <laughs> And <laughs> how far it was is actually this, one really how far stressful. Is this from your yurt? I mean, that's oh, uh, forty feet. Like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, maybe actually less than that. Yeah, yeah, it's just like right. Our beds on the one side of the yurt, and then a stone's throw from there is the the bear den. And so we tried to figure out what to do. We needed to get the bear off the property, and um, you know, like it's. Idaho, so neighbors were like, well, we could come take care of it, but <laughs> we wanted to mitigate it in a different way than I think they were talking about um, when they say mm. take care of it. Um, mm -hmm. So we- uh, Turn it into a rug. Yeah, yeah. So we decided to pepper spray out the, the hole and see if that would keep the bear out for a period of time. And it did, it, it worked. Um, we didn't see the bear for a day or two and our friends came and Everything was good, but then I, I went down and I was wanting to check. We were going to collapse the bear den back in, and I wanted to check and make sure nobody was living in there. And so I stuck my head in the hole, and it was at least a day and a half later, and the pepper spray was still in there, and I got fully blasted by oh. the stagnant air of pepper spray. Oh, man. And like my wife is looking at me kind of running around the property, like crying and coughing. And <laughs> it's nodding everywhere. <laughs> it's nodding everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, at that point we figured it was, it was time and okay to collapse the bear den. Oh my gosh. I was a little, a little sad to say goodbye to. So. How have the wildlife sightings been in Red Lodge? Um, not significant so far, but I was working on a deck. Uh, we, we rebuilt this deck on a, on our buddy's place, which we're living at. And, um, he had been seeing, uh, two bull moose going head to head, like daily in the yard. Mm. And we haven't seen them since. They've been kind of wandering around. We've been hearing news of them. You hear big things walking, though. It's definitely like we are back <laughs> in wild Montana because yeah. Loki was kind of having a deep guttural roar the other night. And I walked out and you just hear like these heavy steps out in the trees. And mm. you know there's big things out there. So, yeah. Feels good in a way to be back in the wild. But man, like... I was so psyched. I started coming down rock climbing a bunch with you guys. And I kept the fire going this fall because... Mountain biking around there is a little more um, engaging, let's say. Like, I just <laughs> feel that I'm risking my life. Yeah, yeah. Like, the biking's the easy part. And I'm just constantly, like, swiveling my head around, like, oh, checking man. checking for things. Yeah. So, yeah. I, uh, I mean, and it's great to ride with other people and you feel more comfortable. But I've been doing some solo rides. And, yeah, it's kind of nice to just go rock climbing intensely. Yeah. You want to paint the scene for us right here? Uh, yeah, so we are hanging in the back of the rock ranch here, and this is your home. It has been for a while now, um, this actual physical spot. Yeah, this, for, this van that we're in right now, and also this well, campsite. Well, yeah, and also the campsite, yeah. yeah. So month and a half you guys have been here, but yeah, it's beautiful. We're just off the creek, um, 
we have clear skies today, which is really nice. Yesterday, I set out in a downpour of rain and cold and sleet and drove down to 10 sleep, optimistically thinking that maybe we'll get some climbing in and it did not look good. And I showed up and it was just pouring in the canyon. And of course, um, Stephen and then our friend Taylor Fragamini, who's here with him, they were optimistic enough to drive up the canyon into a snowstorm and see if the wall was dry, which it was, at least you couldn't see it, right? <laughs> it was, <laughs> yeah, um, it was snowing sideways and it was 35 degrees. So we, we turned around, <laughs> we stared at the wall for about two minutes and then we turned around and drove right back down the canyon, took a little nap. And then it cleared up, sun came out, kinda. I don't know if the sun came out. Yeah, it was was, on the other side of the canyon. Like we we could have climbed. Yeah, we chose to go and climb in the shade. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, it turned out to be a reasonably good day of climbing. We all got a few pitches in. Yeah, you sent. Sent something. Yeah. Yeah. By the skin of my teeth. (laughs) The skin of my teeth. I was frozen, man. That was, I think that was my top two coldest sends ever. I had one at Smith that I can think of that really stands out that was comparable. And maybe that was probably my coldest ever. I was wearing like, it was a route called um, Go Dog Go. And I was wearing thermals, pants, long sleeve wool shirt, t-shirt, uh, fleece jacket, down vest, down puffy over the vest, neck gator, and a beanie. And I still was numbed out and just frozen <laughs> and somehow scraped my way to the top of that thing. But yeah, yesterday it was cold, but like right on the cusp, you know, like I, I just about numbed out and, or I did numb out and just about flash pumped getting through the crux and then just hung out at this kind of miserable rest just long enough to get a tiny bit of sensation back and then numbed out again going to the next bolt and yeah then, totally yeah i was really thankful on on my thing that i i sent too i couldn't feel anything but um i should have said that yeah, yeah i couldn't too. couldn't feel anything but uh it had a rest right before the top and yeah put the hands on the back of the neck for a long period of time and struggled through the last couple of moves and yeah felt, it's kind of weird isn't it felt We're... sort of good but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's weird to climb when you're numb like that it's like your vision is just in your brain. You're just kind of overriding the sensations. You're just like, okay, I can see that I'm on the hold and I appear to be holding on to it. So just do the move. Yeah, totally. And, and your brain is not necessarily telling you that that's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just have a big claw on the end of my hand, a big yeah. frozen yeah. claw. Totally. But yeah. Yeah. Good day of climbing yesterday. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's fun. been, it's been really good to, it's been so fun to get to know you a little bit. And I know you as a climbing physical therapist through Taylor Fragomeni, um, Taylor, who was featured on the recent Q and A for people who listened to that. That's who I've been climbing with here. And she has just, I mean, she can't stop talking about you. She says, she said so many good things about you. You've helped her through many, many injuries and you have this keen ability to diagnose things that other people have missed. She talked about, um, she told me a story where you diagnosed, was it a lap tear in her shoulder? Uh, the slap tear. Slap tear. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> slap tear in her shoulder. Yeah. And, uh, you uh, only missed an S. So I, like, yeah. Super close. <laughs> <laughs> I clearly have no idea about any of this stuff, but yeah, she yeah. had a slap tear in her shoulder and you diagnosed it in like 15 minutes. And then she went and got some imaging done and 
I can't remember the exact details, but it was true. It was, that was what it was. It was a slop tear. And I, I think her doctor was like, I was really skeptical. I didn't think that's what it was. And and you were able to pinpoint it. So I'm, I'm curious. I want to hear a little well, bit about she, your... She is super kind. And she she paints a very amazing and rosy picture of me. And she's, she's Taylor's an incredible person. And she has been a, a really big advocate for me. And yeah. Um, I've appreciated that over the years. Um, well, but, rightly the, so. but the tests are the tests, you know, like mm. it, it, I got to that diagnosis through, you know, the, the things we learn over the years that um, I guess you lean on more and more as you see more reliable um, results in the clinic. But, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you're a very humble guy. So I hear you. I hear everything that you're saying, but I've had carpal tunnel forever. Um, I got diagnosed with carpal tunnel through a nerve conduction study when I was like 23 years old and I'm 33 now. So it's been about a decade. And I've seen a lot of people like I, I went to uh, rehab for a little or, or physical therapy for a little while. I went to, um, I went to a rolfer for a while. Mm-hmm. I went to Mark DeJohn. He was on the podcast, I think in episode four or five, he was really helpful. He's, he does, um, ART, active release technique. Mm-hmm. And he was the person who was able to help me out the most. But then, you know, a couple weekends ago, you were down here and I was kind of describing that my symptoms were coming back. They tend to come back when I'm sport climbing a lot and grabbing on, you know, tiny little crimps and getting pumped, which is 10 sleep. That's what, you know, 10 sleep is like designed to make my carpal tunnel get pissed off again. It seems like it, yeah. But um, just seeing you go through the process of diagnosing something like that, where others have said like, oh, you need to get surgery or, oh, your forearms are tight. And it's just this really simple one-dimensional, very reductive diagnosis. I mean, I don't even know what you were doing to me. You were having me lift my arms up and pull and push on this and that and like testing the way that my traps were moving and doing some uh, adjustments on me. And we were talking about dry needling and all this stuff. So anyway, all this to kind of set you up. I'd love to hear about your background and how you became interested in such a kind of what I would think of as like a holistic physical therapy practice and what the path was to to your practice and what you do now. Yeah. So, um, well, the reason I, I went down the path of physical therapy was I was really curious about human movement. Um, Did climbing come before all this? Uh, yeah, climbing came before all this. Yeah. So I've been climbing for... Uh, about 20 years. I started in my early 20s. Um, and about the same time I started, I, I've skied all my life, but I also started telemark skiing at that time. And with both of those activities, I was just fascinated with how dynamic and variable the movement is, like all the different little intricacies of both those sports. And at the same time, I was ski patrolling and carting a bunch of people off hill. And they're always curious about their diagnosis and like what's going on with them, like what they tweak in their knee. Mm. And I started to get really curious about not just like packaging those people up and sending them off, but um, like the next step. And so I actually started volunteering in a clinic and just observing with who became a mentor, Dan Struble. He's in uh, Teton Valley, Idaho, an amazing PT. And he was super inspiring um, and kind of helped me kind of flip the switch on, on the idea of what physical therapy could be. And kind of we fast forward several years, uh, went to PT school at that point, just obsessed with the idea that I wanted to be a climbing physical therapist. I wanted to study human movement. I wanted to have some sort of lab where I could look at all that and break it down more and more. 
But at the same time, I realized that the hardest skills to gain are the manual skills and the assessment skills. And if you come out of PT school and you don't, I think people have trouble if they go into another, there's all sorts of different types of PT, neuro, um, acute care, all of the, the other things, but you learn a lot of hands-on skills in school that if you don't start practicing right away, they kind of slip away. Mm. So coming out of that work in school, I really wanted to find something where I could carry on those skills and just hammer that down as best as I could. And so I started studying with the organization, North American Institute of Manual Therapy, NIOPT, um, really amazing institute. And they, they basically teach you a systematic assessment everywhere in the body. And the whole idea is to make you really safe with skills like spinal manipulation and more advanced skills in manual therapy because manual therapy is the kind of this catch-all term for a lot of different things we do pushing pulling manipulating the human body um and i really latched onto that i saw the benefit i was doing a lot of observation in clinic with really skilled practitioners people that had you know 40 plus years of experience and watching them break down a condition into simple parts and then working their way to not just the symptom, but the source and, and finding a path toward that really fascinated me. And so I did several years of traveling around the country and taking courses. And I was really well, well supported by the clinic that I worked at to do that, which was awesome. And just even within that clinic, we had several skilled manual therapists that I was able to study under. And so, you know, over time, I just got really interested in bringing that all together. You know, how can we put all of these parts together? And I wanted to be able to use the manual therapy and use the the movement analysis and use all these other skills that you end up acquiring over time, like dry needling and, and bringing it into one package. And I think, well, part of the reason I've, I've been able to do what I do and have some success with it, I think is just the volume of, of patients that are active and interested in getting better. Bozeman has this incredible active population. And that also helped. Like if you are teed up with a certain population that just isn't gonna give you the, the time and the energy into their healing, you're gonna have a more challenging time getting them better. And so, yeah, the motivated population there helped a lot. And yeah, things kind of grew in time, so. I think it'd be it'd be interesting to hear how you think about diagnosing an injury. And I wonder if it makes sense to use the carpal tunnel as an example. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't mean to be greedy with you, but I think it would be interesting. And because again, like for people listening, um, if you don't know carpal tunnel syndrome, the carpal tunnel basically is this like channel where the nerves and tendons go through in the front of your palm behind this ligament. And in my case for a long time, I thought it was inflammation. I, like I said, I got diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome when I was 23. My hands were going to sleep at night. My um, my thumb and my index and middle finger would go to sleep and feel all tingly. And it got to a point where I would have this really intense nerve pain, like this super fiery, uncomfortable nerve pain that would go all the way up to my shoulder at night. And I'd, it would wake me up and I'd have to get up and move around and shake my arm out. And I had no idea what was going on. I thought I had a compressed nerve in my neck or something. And um, when I got that diagnosis, I mean, they basically said, okay, put these splints on at night to keep that wrist in a neutral position and then consider surgery. And that was it. And I wanted to do something more proactive. So I went to physical therapy. 
I didn't really do a whole lot, but the splints helped a lot. So I was able to just sleep through the night and not really have too many issues during the day. And I just kind of dealt, just kind of lived with it for six years. And then finally I went to Mark to John, the ART guy. And he was the first person that looked at me and said like, dude, you have the tightest forearms I've ever seen. This is an injury. Which, which is true as I've assessed you a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they are really freaking tight. Yeah. And that made perfect sense to me. I don't totally understand how tight forearms lead to carpal tunnel exactly. I'd have to honestly go back and listen to my conversation with Mark again. But, you know, he started working on my forearms and then eventually on my shoulder and neck to loosen things up. And that basically fixed it. But again, no one that I've talked to until you have laid me down on a table and looked at how my shoulder and my back was moving and working and, you know, had me do these different strength assessments and stuff. So anyway, I'm talking too much, but maybe share your, your thought process when I said, Hey, I've been struggling with carpal tunnel. Like what are, what are some of the first steps that you go through and are thinking about? Yeah. So, um, it's been really neat to get to look at this and I want more time to actually treat it. That's been kind of the bummer. These trips have been like quick hits and we haven't wanted to do too much to you on climbing days, um, which I feel is, is selling you short a little bit in terms of what we could actually do. But in terms of the process, I diagnostically, just through my training and experience, always kind of clear out things more proximally before we look distally. So that's looking like back toward the center of the body, in this case, cervical spine, thoracic spine, before we work all the way down to where the symptom is. Um, and I think that's vital because you can just miss things. And in this case, carpal tunnel um, double crush is a term we use in physical therapy to basically talk about a symptom that may be coming from somewhere up the chain that will be exacerbating the symptom down the chain. So in this case, you do have the compression in the carpal tunnel. The diagnostics are there for sure. The tests that we do to look at carpal tunnel syndrome are pos positive. Um, but I looked at initially just the posture of your shoulder. So as soon as you mentioned it, I was kind of looking and kind of pinned down that that shoulder just looked different. It was rolled forward. It was sagging a little bit. Um, didn't have the same presentation as the other shoulder. And going from there, we did some cervical range of motion tests. There was a little bit of tightness that you could see just through active range of motion in the cervical spine, which made me wanna look not just at your neck, but also at your upper thoracic spine and see how things are moving there. And the reason I wanna look there is that for shoulder range of motion, when we took you through that, you were just a little bit stiff at the top range of motion in shoulder flexion and things moved just a little bit differently. And then when we did resistance tests, throughout the shoulder, there was just a little bit of weakness globally in multiple different positions, including rotator cuff, external rotation. And um, what we eventually got around to was um, when you try to activate your lower trapezius, it just like doesn't work. So- Yes, did you wanna just, do you wanna describe that exercise or should Yeah, I? yeah, so that was, well, we, we did it in a really contrived way because we did it like just- <clears throat> I think I was belaying. Like, up against the wall, yeah. Yeah, Taylor, <laughs> Taylor, Taylor she went indirect. So yeah, this is not the standard manual muscle test for this. Like PTs <laughs> out there are gonna be like, that. that's not how you do that. Um, but we had been trying to find a place and finally I was just like, dude, just like get up against the wall and reach one arm back. And normally we do this with you laying down on your stomach and on a plinth table, but here we've done stuff on picnic tables and up against walls. So. <laughs> Is a plinth table the table with the little hole for your face? Yeah. So like a high-low table would be actually okay. that, that table. Um, okay. 
But anyhow, we had you up against the wall and the right arm we tested and it just activated right away and you pushed against me and gave me resistance. Left arm, there was just nothing. Like you could not recruit at all. And the reason, so we're kind of going in circles here. So this is fast forwarding a day or two of me just watching Steven move. But he, on the wall, had really good shoulder mechanics. Like from day one, a month ago, month and a half ago when I came here, his scapular mechanics are tight. They're really good. But there are certain positions when you're reaching where you would benefit from having a little bit more scapular engagement. And in those positions, what I noticed with your shirt off is that you've got a lot of development in your right lower trapezius and your left just isn't there. Like Hmm. there's something missing there. And the lower trapezius basically helps us in terms of scapular mechanics with this force couple that's created between the upper trap, lower trap, middle trap, and then this muscle deep underneath the shoulder blade called the serratus anterior. And those four muscles control that slow upward and downward movement of the scapula so that we don't just wing out or we don't just quickly elevate under some sort of resistance or load, or even just reaching pat, like reaching for a hold and being disengaged. Then when you actually get on the hold, it makes it more difficult to recruit at that time, Mm. if that makes sense. So all of that combined, looking at, those things I really wanted to look at your, your well, you mentioned the nerve conduction study. So we were gonna do some sort of neural tension testing eventually, but it was really profound in terms of how positive that test was. So they're called upper limb tension tests. They basically, basically look at in your peripheral nervous system, how tight things are. And for you, you're really wound up on both sides, but specifically on that left side, there's a lot more of that neural tension. So. With that, with the compensated posture, and then we kind of dug into the muscles and how did it feel when I was like pushing on all the muscles that we pushed on? (laughs) (laughs) Um, How did it feel when we pushed on the muscles? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how to answer that. Um, the, the, tr- I mean the, the trigger points. The trigger. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the trigger points. Okay, yeah. It (laughs) it feels like you're like somehow accessing a spot in the back of my brain or something. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I was oh say, it God. didn't feel very good. <laughs> yeah, it just, it like lights up this connection all the way up through like the back of the head somehow, the back of the neck. Sure, yeah. Cause really there's intense. even stuff that's like really tight that goes up to the base of your skull. And with some of the, the trigger points we were able to produce, you know, like headache-like symptoms coming into the, the left side of that temporal area in your head. And so, I think all of those things are significant in terms of you getting through, you know, it it may be something that you always deal with and have to mitigate, but I think that you can get to a level where you have the exercises and the the tools and the things that you know that you can do independently Mm -hmm. to keep this at bay. It may Mm -hmm. take a little period of, of rest and not climbing on the type of stuff that we've been talking about aggravating it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I think I think with all of those things, I always look at the more things I find that we can fix, the more excited I get, just because that's more opportunity for working on things through the system that should, in a sense, decompress the nerve distally. Mm. And it doesn't actually do that. It's just giving it less stress up the chain so that its tolerance to stress down the chain mm. is improved. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to paint a little bit more of a picture of the the strength test that you did just for people listening. Because oh, yeah. this was that. the one, I mean, we did a lot of different tests and for a lot of them, like doing the rotator cuffs, for instance, I couldn't necessarily tell that there was a difference left to right. I think you could sure. tell that there was a subtle difference, but they felt roughly the same to me. 
and you know, these are just funny things where I'm like holding my arm to my side and trying to rotate from my elbow down outward and you're, res you're like holding resistance and I feel like I'm trying as hard as I can and it's probably like five pounds of force or something like that. It just it, it is an area that there's potential for growth for you, for sure. Like considering what I've <laughs> yeah. seen with your strength all the way around, I think that that's, you know, it's a supplemental exercise. It's super boring, but a weighted exercise for that would probably improve some of the, even what you were talking about in terms of like how quickly you go into external or it's internal rotation, how quickly you fall out of external rotation. And for people thinking about this, if, you're, if you've got your arms, like you're reaching up for a pull-up bar, but you keep your arms at 90 degrees and you're in that position, that winging of the elbow going back, so that's gonna be internal rotation. External rotation is gonna be pulling your hand back posterior, back toward the back of your body. And we all have trouble with it. And nobody's ever gonna have the, the type of strength in those muscles to, avoid at some point having that chicken winging happening. I mean, the classic thing is like when you're pumped and you grab a crimp and your elbow just like yeah, goes straight just out. Yeah, goes right out, totally. Yeah, yeah. and I think, you know, I, I, th I think there's room for growth there, but go ahead and describe the, yeah. the exercise that we keep. Yeah, yeah, okay. So the one where I was at the cliff and I was belaying, uh, Matt had me just put my arms straight overhead one at a time. And then he held his arms against my arm and tried to have me basically resist him. So I was trying to like, I was, my arm was straight overhead and I was trying to bring my arm even further back, like behind my head with my arms straight. And it was funny. I mean, even Taylor could tell she was like watching from 50 feet up on the route or whatever. And she's like, whoa, you're really weak on that side. Yeah. Like so my right like, side. It's like I a felt, Y position. You're like not directly straight overhead, but you're a, y a little position. bit, yeah, you're okay. out into a Y position. So okay. that's the, the classic lower, lower trap. Got it. And so yeah, right arm was able to fire and I don't know how much resistance, but I was, I felt like I could do something yeah. in that position. And then my left arm just, just like, oh, there's nothing there. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really good for patient buy-in. Like in terms of, you were mm. asking about diagnostics too. I think another important thing is to, to show a patient what they're missing. And that can also be, you know, like a sign of hope too, like something I can work on, something that I can go after that, may be a part of this whole puzzle. And for you, I think that weakness, I think that all the other trigger points we found, so we found trigger points in his upper trap, in his pectoral muscles, Terry's major, which is another one of the rotator cuff, external rotators. All of those muscles were holding pretty strong trigger points, infraspinatus, another part of the rotator cuff. And I think they're all just overworking like crazy because they don't get that complementary activation with the lower trapezius mm. in order to create that force couple we're talking about. So everything moves in, you know, air quotes, more of a normal way. Mm -hmm. Well, this is awesome, man. The reason I want to talk about all this, I mean, I'm sure that there's very few people out there with carpal tunnel who can relate to anything that we're saying, but I think there's just so much value in hearing how complex and connected everything is, you know, and it's... Yeah, it's super exciting. Like, it, <laughs> <laughs> no, it would be so boring. I love boring. how excited you No, it would be so boring it. if it was all just like cut and dry and like we wrote books about it. And right. It's just like, there, there's a, a skill in that assessment, which um, over the years, you know, it's like as geeky and excited as I am about climbing, like just as much in terms of like what I've learned mm. in the clinic. And, um, and yeah, it's fun. And I keep learning all the time, for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the reason I think it's 
hopefully helpful to people to talk about is, is I want to go in a few different directions with this. At one point, I'd love to talk about how people can find a good PT. I mean, I'd love for people to work with you and we'll share your contact info for sure. But what to look for in a PT if you have an injury, someone who's going to look more deeply at the root cause versus just like, oh yeah, you have carpal tunnel, it's time to get surgery, you know, because that's such a frustrating part of Western medicine. It's so reductive and we just want to slap a, a simple diagnosis on something and sure. treat people with drugs or surgery right away. So I'd love to get to that. And then another thing, I think we should go here next. I think one of the things I'm most curious to get your thoughts on, seems like there's been a little bit of a larger debate in the strength training and physical therapy world recently, which is, does it come down to tissue capacity or biomechanics? Mm -hmm. You know, and um, like I think of Natasha Barnes with this, she's kind of championed, at least in the climbing world, letting go of this idea of having perfect posture because everybody's different, everyone adapts differently to different exercises. And really, in I think from her perspective, I'm probably oversimplifying it, but I think she would say that it just comes down to tissue capacity, just giving your body time to adapt and get used to a movement before you just do too much of it, which we so often do. So usually when there's an injury, it comes down to doing too much or too heavy too quickly. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. How do you think about tissue capacity versus biomechanics? Because I think like my case is kind of a class or a, a perfect example, actually, you know, like my other, my other muscles in my left shoulder are compensating for the lack of firing with my lower trapezius and that's leading to problems, you know, so I'm adapting to the loading that I'm doing, but I'm also missing this thing and I'm assuming it's going to help me out if I, if I address it. So anyway, yeah, no, I don't I mean think to answer for you, but. No, that's perfect. I think that's a really good tee up on that. Um, yeah, and you, you had mentioned this beforehand to me, and I thought a lot about it. Um, I think actually the segue with what you were talking about from Natasha Barnes is is really interesting because I, th so I think for any athlete, um, both are a huge factor. And I want to start with just thinking about if you look at pro climbers and their general mechanics, and you look at things like what I was trying to pick apart on you on the wall is people don't get to an elite level with having terrible mechanics, like mm. something's gonna break in the system or they're just not gonna have the capacity to pull off those types of movements that are really difficult. And so watching, watching pro climbers in particular, they have excellent scapular mechanics and that comes from somewhere and it's repetition and load and time, like all of those factors. But what I saw in the clinic a lot, treating more novice climbers and intermediate climbers is that they will rely and because the, and it's because the difficulty isn't to a point where it pushes them to have to force the correction or they just won't be able to do it mm. but they will fall into patterns of significant compensation that they'll carry forward because um, they're getting away with it based on the getting, level that they climb totally yeah, yeah. Sure. and so so the way i've thought about it for a lot of folks like if you think of who can can walk away with this with a little nugget is that if you can iron those things out early on, I think that the chance that you're gonna adapt in a better way in terms of your tissue capacity, you're gonna accelerate that process. And within session in the clinic, I was, and coaches will know this because that's what they're doing all the time. They're, they're teaching people micro adjustments in their movement. 
And then if you do enough repetitions of that, that becomes ingrained, it becomes a movement schema. And then from then on, that becomes a strength exercise, just that in and of itself. And the biomechanics part can be really eye-opening there in terms of altering your shoulder mechanics a little bit to get a little bit more facilitation of foot drive through your core. So being able, if you think of just face-on climbing and diagonals, being able to load from one shoulder to an opposing foot and having that tension created, if you're very compensated in your shoulder, you're gonna find a way around it, but it's not gonna optimize your core activation and your ability to generate force through your foot. And you can sneak around that for a really long time. And that's where systems walls are amazing is you can actually show people what they're lacking and they Mm -hmm. can see it one side versus another. And then if you can bring in fancy things like a G strength or a, a strain gauge and show them different positions that they have strength in on one side versus the other and where their compensations may be in line with their weaknesses and then target those weaknesses, but not just target them through strength exercises. I think that's where if you can target, target them through movement and giving skills drills that target those specific things, people will improve quite a bit faster and they'll also avoid injury. I, I think that the, there is a big debate about biomechanics and even it, so in the PT world throughout the body, there's a debate about how important it is if we should just have people lift and move heavy stuff, which is super important. And I'll touch on that in a minute. Um, but with climbers, just that, that key factor that if we ingrain those movement patterns in a very compensated way, they're gonna carry forward in our climbing and they'll be a lot harder to get rid of down the line. Mm. Um, tissue capacity, what's been interesting from the literature is we've seen that people need to pick up heavy stuff. And that's, I think, a big change in the last, you know, maybe 10 years in physical therapy is that previously we would kind of rely on TheraBand exercises and things that were low load and what could maybe correct an issue for a period of time and get people to be pain-free. But that tolerance to load is becoming more and more obvious a healing path. And um, I think kind of going in circles here. Maybe you'll help me bring it back around, but. Uh, This is great, (laughs) keep going, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Um, So I think that combination, so when I think about tissue capacity, I I think about that tolerance to absolute load. And I think that if we can do it with um, key biomechanics in mind, we're gonna get better results. Mm. So it's a both, a both and situation. Yeah, that's what I was expecting. That's what I was expecting. I mean, you just say actually, and it's, it makes sense. Like I've always thought it was curious. Um, the the thought of like, okay, let's have this really strong high level athlete do some band exercises that's gonna fix them. I'm like, really? When this person's capable right. of like whatever, you know, bench pressing 250 pounds or what, whatever it is that they do or doing pull-ups with hundred pounds added to their body, like a climber. Right. It's like, is a TheraBand like really gonna fix them, you know? So, um, it makes sense that it would be both, that you would have to ingrain those movements and get things moving correctly and then slowly apply load to that and and really eventually lift heavy with that. Is that, am I interpreting, yeah, am yeah. I hearing you correctly? No, absolutely. And I think that, you know, from an injury prevention standpoint, I, I think of tissue capacity in, in other ways too, like just in terms of fingers tolerance to load. Like, 
people need to be systematically and progressively loading their fingers, especially for the level of climbing they're at. And if they're missing that link, I mean, this gets talked about on the podcast and other places all the time and, and it has ultimate value. But if you're, if you're doing it without the shoulder strength you need. So if you think about that, like pumped is one example of like when winging is definitely going to occur. But if you look at people on a hangboard, they'll hang in all sorts of different ways. And some people can have really strong finger strength, but they will actually hang in external rotation or sorry, internal rotation. So the elbow will go winging out a little bit. Mm -hmm. And in that, you can see that on the wall. And this is this has been really fascinating in clinic is to watch somebody with these, you know, air quotes, compensated mechanics and then put them on the strain gauge, then put them on the hangboard and compare all of those things. And what I get concerned about if we, if they can pull a move and keep getting away with it, it's their sight, <laughs> that's all they need, right? <laughs> but if we're looking through the lens of long-term health in the joints of not only the shoulder, but looking down the chain, if you put that same person on a hangboard and you watch their form and they go into that elbow wing and compensated position, there's torsion in the fingers all of a sudden. And so mm. instead of just pulling straight down, they're dealing with some torsion at the DIP especially, and maybe even into the PIP joint, the dip in the pip. And those torsions can create their own stresses and repetition over time can lead to things like joint stress and reactions from that. And I, I like to look at the whole climber thinking about that a little bit and at least giving them exposure to that and showing them what that looks like and letting them feel that out. And if they can correct that with maybe some band exercises just to create the facilitation of muscle activation and then take that to more complex and compound exercises, mm. I think that's the ticket. I want to hear how you would think about having me fix what's going on with me. And this isn't, I, I want to hear what your thoughts are kind of globally. You don't have to give me a prescription or try to treat me right now, but just as far as like what you've seen with my lower trap not firing, these uh, posture compensations, all of this presenting in carpal tunnel, which is the thing that's bothering me. You know, I've had to wear my splints again at night being here. I wanna hear what the path in your mind would be forward to actually address this and fix it. And I was curious, I mean, because, you know, for, for people listening, um, this is something that started when I moved to Smith Rock and all of a sudden I went from, you know, bouldering in Leavenworth and climbing at Equinox and climbing in steeper styles where you're just not doing as many moves on small holds to all of a sudden climbing five days a week on this, you know, mostly vertical, mostly small holds, very pumpy, sustained, crimpy climbing. And I think it was just such a leap in very specific, a very specific type of volume and I've kind of had a similar thing coming back to ten sleep, where I've been mostly bouldering for the last couple of years. And when I'm not bouldering, I'm mostly projecting steep sport routes that don't have the same kind of persistent load on small holds on the hands. And then coming here, we've been climbing basically two days on, one off for like a month. And all of a sudden, my carpal tunnel's back. So it's had me thinking, like, is this just an issue of ramping up the volume too quickly? Or if all these, you know, is it that we need to fix these other things that are going on? Anyway, I'm, I'm talking. To yeah. You so, I mean, I don't, I don't think an absolute like cessation of climbing is necessary to, to get rid of this. A change in style would probably help. Like you've mentioned, if you're bouldering, 
maybe that's the season, like going to Waco, which you're doing this winter again, um, that might be the time for you to really focus on these PT exercises. Mm. And the most important part to start with is to improve, you know, a simple term is like chest opening, but- Chest opening. Yeah, just for you, it's the upper thoracic spine was very stiff. Um, Stephen, can you describe what we did on the picnic table? I just want to hear how you would describe that. <laughs> which which part? The manipulation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Okay, so we <laughs> we were at the we were at the rock ranch. You had never couple, had this done before, right? <laughs> he, correct. Yeah, this is a couple of weeks ago, and Matt set up his thermorest on top of a picnic table as his makeshift PT workbench of sorts. I was laying on top of that. And then you put your hand behind my back. I mean, we, we tried a bunch of different things, but eventually you put your hand behind my back on what you found to be a trigger point and wrapped uh, my- stiff stiff joint. A stiff joint, okay. Yeah. Wrapped my arm around myself and basically hugging myself with Matt leaning over me with his uh, hand under my back and then put pressure, like kind of bounced and put pressure and gave me um, a manipulation. And I felt this little pop pop in my back. And um, you had done an, a movement assessment on me looking at, what were you looking at? The yeah, so this isn't, isn't commonly used in the PT world. There's like zero research, but it's something I learned through NIOMPT and it's something I just hang my hat on in the clinic. Like I go to this coupled group of tests, which would be looking at your, um, your so your, your sternum and your manubrium in the chest are attached to the ribs, right? And that rolls all the way back around and is attached to the thoracic spine. And so you can see there's palpation tests, pushing tests, where I can look at your spinal mobility from behind by putting my hands on the joints of the thoracic spine and having you do certain cervical movements to look at how you move down to certain segments in the spine. And then I compare that to how these same movements are reflected through the what's called the manubrium, the sternum in the front of the body. And so what we saw with Steven is basically in both of those tests, zero movement on, in that case, the left side at T3, 4, I think I remember, and then also up at T1 and 2. So two different levels where there was just not movement at all on one side. And the reason that's important to me is that we move all the way down to T6 into backbending, spinal extension, when we reach all the way up overhead with our arms. So if you're not getting it there, you're going to have that that lack of mobility reflected somewhere back into your shoulder. And mm. I think, again, that might be part of this puzzle of what's hanging things up. It might be part of the inhibition of the lower trapezius. That's really hard to say, but I certainly think it's part of why those trigger points are persistent is you're just not moving through your upper thoracic spine. Mm. Um, and then, so we repeated those tests right after the manipulation. And here's where like trust in your PT is is important, but I'm sitting here and like Steven's like looking at me and he's like, oh, it, it moves better. Okay, great. And I had a tailor go behind and <laughs> kind of confirm, but I think you felt it though, didn't you? Like in terms of not, not, not in the back, but just the physical palpation, like you could tell the difference in what was moving when I was pushing with my hands in those tests. Yeah. Well, I felt the pop pop and then you repeated the, the movement test again. And you're like, oh, yep, 100% movement now. And yeah, I, I and could, I mean, that's and like, I could tell. Yeah. I could tell that it was, something had changed. Something was kind of like free yeah. in my left shoulder. And it's interesting because I don't want to do too much of a tangent here, but I'm curious how you think about manipulations. 
Um, I've always been very skeptical skeptical of uh, chiropractic work because, you know, and I don't know where this is from. I, I don't, I have no real knowledge of this and I'm sure there's great chiropractics out there, but I've just always kind of, the perception I have um, and from people that have, have gone to chiropractics, it just always seems like a Band-Aid fix and then they have to go back and they have to go back again. And it's moving things and loosening things up, but they're not ingraining those changes through exercises or through yeah. strengthening which, exercises. Which is where like, there's amazing chiropractors out there and uh, people with skills manipulation wise way beyond my skill. Um, but it's it's about teaching the person to use what you're giving them and not having them rely on coming back for repeated treatments. So the thing that I just can't sign up for with um, physical therapists or chiropractors is like, we're going to go twice a week forever, you know? Mm. And whoever's telling you that isn't, well, they're not giving you the tools that you need to, one, create just independence in your body and, and taking care of it. But the other factor there is that the repeated, so if you go and you just repeatedly manipulate a segment, we get these chemicals released, these kind of feel good chemicals that kind of give you a little euphoria and high after a manipulation. Some people feel it more than others, but there is a factor there where people will actually, you know, crave that popping and that manipulation. And you have to be careful with those folks. They are not appropriate for at least, frequent manipulation. Um, but what I think about there is that if I'm gonna restore movement, so we gave you one simple exercise and I would have expanded upon that if I, if I could have gotten back down here last week, but one simple exercise to encourage mobility in that segment T3, 4 after the manipulation. And I feel it's a disservice not to give somebody something to emphasize if whatever you're doing to them manually to emphasize that at home, so. And, and the goal would be, so you don't have to come back for repeated manipulations. Right. And, you know, there's skepticism about whether that's even necessary in some parts of the PT world. PT is kind of shifting to a certain manipulations extent. Manipulations necessary? Uh, manipulations, but more um, certain parts of the PT world are, are looking more at just loading up the human body to create resilience. And there's a lot there, but skipping over some of the key manual therapy things because they just don't hold weight in the literature, it's really hard to prove that that stuff actually provides benefit. Mm. It's a, that's a tough study. You know, there are some that loosely correlate improved function with, with manipulation, but it's a lot easier to look at the literature of resilience in tissues, like people with low back pain that, you know, pick up a practice of doing deadlifting and they never have before and have these amazing outcomes mm. and changes in their well-being. It's just a lot harder to look at kind of finite things like one segment or a couple segments in the spine not moving well. Sure, so that makes sense. That, that's to circle around and say, you know, in terms of the chiropractic work, I, I really respect a lot of chiropractors and I think they, they do have a key piece in the uh, healthcare system if it's done properly, you mm. know, and if, and if they're using the assessment techniques. The other thing that's tough there is that, and, and again, a lot of chiros are getting away from this, but strictly using imaging. So taking pictures of the spine and saying that this and this aren't in proper position and then manipulating it and continuing to manipulate it because they see that in the imaging. You know, that's that's been disproven for the most part in the literature. And also if they're not doing a manual assessment, looking segment by segment at mobility, 
they're going to miss something in terms of just doing some big rotary general manipulation. So where they like wind you up on the table and everything cracks. You know, if you do that over and over, you're going to loosen a segment to the point where it may become hypermobile. And that may in and of itself become not just a dysfunction, but, you know, something that could really cause harm to people. Mm. Is imaging important in diagnosing injuries? That was another thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, so yes and no on that. And I think it really, it totally depends on what we're looking at. So if we get away from just the kind of the classic climbing injuries, like for an ACL injury, if somebody comes into the clinic and has knee pain and has a mechanism of injury, and I do a test, which is called the Lockman's is the most reliable. I do that test and it's positive. I feel really strongly that they're gonna have an ACL tear. Like if you know how to do that test and it's a fairly simple test, it's pretty likely that they're gonna go and get an image and there's an ACL tear. The importance of getting that image is because in the mo for the most case, the next step is surgery there. Mm. And so sending them out to see a surgeon, they're gonna want an MRI, that's all appropriate. Um, where imaging can get overused, um, and we'll get to some climbing stuff, but where injury, imaging can be overused is looking at certain types of low back pain and dysfunction. Um, there's great studies, and I can't cite a source just off the top of my head right now, but there's great studies looking at um, disc pathology, so a herniation of a disc and comparing somebody with pain and somebody without pain. And the images can be exactly the same, mm. you know, in terms of what it looks like and, and the severity of it. And it's hard to see how the people don't have pain, but some people functionally are doing just fine and they have this really bad MRI. And some people are just the opposite. You know, they mm. may have less severity in the image and have much more pain. So I think it's much more complex than that. And, and where it gets sticky is if we're, if we're getting people to attach their, themselves to their diagnosis through an image, because that really stands out and creates perseveration on their injury. And- Perseveration on their injury. So yeah, like in their mind, they're spinning out okay. on, you know, that image tells me that I have this I'm pathology broken. and I'm broken mm. and people can really go down a path that's hard to correct. And that gets into kind of pain sciences and how our perception of injury can really affect our experience of pain. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just to touch on the imaging part, um, in those circumstances, images can, can lead people astray. Mm. Um, as far as it goes with a lot of the things I see, so most common would be Looking at shoulder injuries, um, I think that uh, you know, over the years, I've basically broken it down to patients that, are you up for getting surgery? Like, is that your next step? And if it's not, there's a lot of evidence for a lot of different injuries, including rotator cuff tears and labral tears that, and labral tears is an exception. If you've had multiple dislocations, and you, it's basically a three strikes you're out rule, then you're gonna go see the doc, we're gonna refer you out, and that's an appropriate move. Um, but the literature and clinically, you know, the, the thing that keeps coming up for me is that people will get attached to that diagnosis. Like if I send them day one to go out and get an image, 
it's the same thing I was talking about with the back just a minute ago, that they will start associating their pain with this dysfunction that they physically can see in the image. You know, if the physician shares it with them and they're looking at it, that's something that's imprinted in the brain. And that can really steer us astray in terms of, of our path forward and, and healing. So mm. yeah, I, I just break it down for the patient. Like, are you ready to go get surgery? And if the answer is no, then I talk to them about the timeline and what I feel is safe and appropriate in terms of how long we're gonna work on this thing and load this thing up and see its resilience and tolerance. And then if we're not getting the results, then maybe that's an appropriate time to go go down to the doc office and get an image, so. Man, you just touched on so many great things there. Um, the, the pain thing is so fascinating. And for people listening, I, uh, had a really great, really fascinating conversation with Heath Jennings on the podcast. I can't remember what episode number, but I'll be sure to share it in the in the show notes. Uh, Heath is also a physical therapist and has studied a lot of pain science. And it's just fascinating how really the stories that we tell ourselves about our injury can directly affect the pain experience because pain is something that our brain is creating. Anyway, that's that's my yeah, understanding. And, and I listened to that episode. That was a great episode. And would do you would, do you I agree with everything in out there? to that episode? Um, well, actually, so I have that was uh, probably a year and a half ago, huh? Um, in terms of the pain science in the literature, yeah, I I I really do see that people and their perception of their dysfunction affects their not only their mindset but their ability to heal. And I mean, that gets to deeper stuff that I don't understand physiologically, but there is certainly something in our, our um, maybe hope's the right word, you know, or, mm. or optimism, you know, so something in there that if we can latch onto something we can do that's positive, that's progressive. And, and that's where those first visits with, with patients are so critical, like to create a bit of hope and it's really hard in the clinic. And one reason is the, the, you know, most clinics you're working on a 30 minute schedule. I worked on a 45 um, and even that was challenging to, to do everything you need to do and let the patient walk out the first day, not feeling like they're totally broken. Mm. There's a grace in that and being able to find the key things again, like we'll come back to, I haven't given you any prescription yet. We'll come back yeah, to yeah. you, but you know, the key things in those first sessions so that, that they see things that they can do, even if things look dismal, things that they can do that are positive, that's gonna set them out in a way that's gonna give them a lot better chance at coming back and feeling a little more optimistic the next session. And then maybe you're able to build in something else that feels positive. You know, it might not even be working on the body part, you know? Maybe they were like, well, you know, your shoulder isn't ready for what we're gonna give it, but we can get blood flow going by moving the body, you know, give them something they can do. Mm. And I think that can go a long way in just avoiding that that word we were just saying, that perseveration on their symptom, their injury. Mm -hmm. That's great. I'd, I'd wanted to ask you about that. I have a bullet point in front of me about language and the mindset that people have around their injury, how important it is. And then I wanted to ask you, um, how do you guide your clients when it comes to their self-talk and their mindset, their their idea of themselves when they have an injury? Any yeah. like language cues or anything that you well, coach people through? You know, it, I guess what we were just talking about with like what you can give them that first session is one thing that's super important is my language. 
that my language and even the tones I use and the facial expressions and my cues indicate that we're in a safe space and that, you know, things are going to be okay. Mm. And that takes some grace and it's kind of hard to describe exactly like how that comes across presentation wise, but there's a grace in that. And again, you can do a lot of harm by telling someone they're really broken in that first session. At the same time, you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be dishonest. You want to be clear with what you think is going on. And oftentimes it's good to focus on the tests and what they indicate as opposed to attaching a name or pathology to something. So Mm -hmm. I think that that may be something that is the most important is they don't walk out thinking I have this thing totally broken. Mm. But instead you described that, you know, we have this test and this test and coupled together, I think that there's some aggravation of this tissue, you know, and not making it a diagnosis. So, mm. in a, you know, in my mind, I'm going through my functional diagnosis. I'm trying to create a plan already at the, you know, every point of the session, I'm like, okay, what can I give them before they leave? And that's part of that skill of working in a clinic at a fast pace and like getting it all done. But if you rush through it and you seem stressed and at the end you drop some bomb on them in terms of some term that they're gonna go and look up on the internet and find a million different descriptions of the bad thing, that can be really harmful. In terms of the mindset, I try to create optimism without false hope through, again, giving them things that they can start working on and the way that that can help heal their body. Mm. Because there's always something you can work on. And in terms of mindset, if they're having trouble with that, discussing, you know, I will discuss the literature about perseveration on an injury. And, you know, if if they're up for it, describe to them how, if we can just get them to channel that focus to the things that we're doing that are productive and that can help with their healing process rather than perseverating on the thing, I think that can go a long way. Mm. Man, that's a life lesson, isn't it? It is. We could apply that to just about about everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm learning that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Where did I want to go next? I had about seven different racing thoughts while you were talking just now, but. um... Well, since we're still on the clinic stuff, let me, uh, let me tell you. So for your shoulder or for your uh, carpal tunnel. So we said that chest opening thing. What does that mean? It's just like, get your pecs open. But For you, I think doing a lot of work, which you can do on a foam roller on spinal extension in the upper thoracic spine and not overstressing. I saw you grab different belay glasses the other day and I think that's good. Not overstressing the cervical spine so we can get tension to calm down Mm. in the cervical spine musculature. Work on mobility in the thoracic spine. That gives you the ability to get more out of the chest opening and pectoral stretching. And the reason that's important is all that tension in your forearm, I think is coming from upstream as we've talked about, but you've got this on the anterior side, the front side of the body, you've got this fascial system that runs through the shoulder, the pectoral area, and then all the way down through the arm. And if we can get that to be more compliant, you can think of it as less compression 
on your nervous distribution all the way down from the shoulder through the arm. And that's gonna happen by starting up the chain and getting your, your thoracic spine moving better, getting your shoulder moving a little bit more the way we want to and posturally a little bit more lined up. And then doing these nerve mobility exercises, um, it's, it's called nerve flossing is the common term that most people hear these days. And being really systematic with how you progress your nerve flossing so that you're not pushing into the symptom, but that you're slowly working on that neural compliance and mobility. So our nerves don't stretch, but they can improve in terms of their tolerance to running through range of motion. Mm. And the more you can decompress things that are pushing on them up the chain, the more mobile and compliant they can become. Mm. Awesome. Okay, so what is it gonna look like for me to get my lower trapezius firing again? And how does that, how can we feed that into my climbing in a way where I no longer have to work on it because it's just, I'm climbing that way and using yeah. that strength. So I think, I think we need to get those trigger points to calm down. So I think that all those muscles I mentioned previously, upper trap, the parts of the rotator cuff and the pectorals, um, some body work would be good. So some massage, trigger point dry needling. And I keep talking about- We should, we should- Putting you out on the table. On too. Yeah, yeah, yeah sticking some, needles in me. Some voodoo doll on yeah. you. Um, but it really has a, you know, it has a, it has a short-term benefit in that we get this latent period where the muscle actually relaxes. And, and that's, the, that's the gold in it, is that you can get this window of opportunity to then activate the other muscles. So mm. that's what I find is beneficial with that type of trigger point release. It could be with your hands, it could be with, with dry needles, but basically getting those other things to shut down a little bit. So you have that window to re-educate the other muscles. Re-educate, I like that. Yeah. That's cool. Okay, yeah. so the muscles that are compensating have these tight spots because they're just firing all the time. So right. getting those to chill out so you can actually get the Yeah, and the then even like within session, we would, you know, basically we would needle it and or push on it and or manipulate some things and then teach you to fire right away. Like mm. get you maybe manually on the table working against me and or just working against a resistance band or over a physio ball, any of those will work. And then ideally right away taking it to the wall and retraining it to activate in certain mm. positions that emphasize that, you know, air quotes, proper scapular engagement. What would, I mean, can you describe that climbing movement? Like what would a climbing movement look like? You know, to... I would just, I would, for you being at the level you are in terms of being advanced and being really in your body, it could be as simple as just like pulling down through a lock off. So a mm. long reach, getting from that long reach, pulling down all the way through the range of motion with the scapula not elevated, but depressed. So pulled down and across on your back. Think of like pulling it toward your opposite hip. Oh, okay. Yeah. Pulling it towards you. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Which is really general. And I mean, like, I remember Jared Vagie was on here talking about, you know, the difference between like over-engagement and disengagement. And I think that's super valuable too. Um, but for you, we've got a situation where it's just not firing. So you'd kind of overemphasize the activation of that one particular muscle while we get everything else to, we're gonna recruit that muscle. We're gonna get everything else to chill out and do repeated movements to, mm. to, to emphasize that. And there's other really good therapy. I'll, I'll show you a couple actually after session today, but um, there's some good TheraBand exercises just, that just cue that muscle. Okay. Along with the rotator cuff to kind of all fire in conjunction. 
And do you think like is is the muscle just not there on the left side? I don't side? think so. I think it's there. It's there. It's yeah. just sleepy. I'd be really surprised if you're doing what you're doing and it's just not there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Because like, I was like, like how I long said, is like, this strengthening journey gonna be to rebuild this muscle? So dude, here's the exist? thing. Like I was I was here, you know, five weeks ago and I I walked up and that was really funny too. That was like, oh man, like I've heard this guy's voice so much. What's he gonna <laughs> sound like in person? Like <laughs> was when, it I, different? When, when uh when Taylor texts me that, yeah, come on down, climb with me and Steven. I was like Steven, huh? I wonder if that's the Steven. You know, it's like, <laughs> and then sure enough, she said so. And man, I was like, when I was driving down here, I was like, Steven. is it is it awkward to like listen to a podcast from the dude you're gonna go climb with like before you get there? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I plugged one in anyway. And sure enough, you were you were a, a human. <laughs> It's good to hear. An awesome human and easy to interact with. But what I was going to say there, man, was like, I got to the wall and I got to watch you climb um, shirt off that day. And I think I would have seen that because I was really, you were working, uh, what was that one right of Hala? Uh, Hootie Delivery was what I was Hootie Delivery. I mean, so that's like, you're pulling down pretty hard. And it was really fun to watch. And at that time, like I did my quick assessment, like I couldn't help. And I was like, oh shit, man, all of that is like dialed. That looks like super, super good. And so there was a difference between that and then fast forward a month later when you're more symptomatic, mm. there was something there. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you think something got tightened up and that muscle kind of shut down actually. I think so. Over the course of the last month. Yeah, I think so. Huh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't mean to bounce around even more here, but that leads to a question that I'm really curious about is like, let's say, are you okay? Oh yeah. Good. Okay. Let's say that, um, I go to Waco, I, you know, work on this stuff. Like what I'm thinking of doing is going to Waco and just putting a pause on any supplemental training I would otherwise be doing. Cause I usually, the last couple of years I've gone to Waco and like two or three nights a week, I just do a very simple strength workout just to kind of maintain, do, do some kettlebell overhead presses, do some scapular lock-offs, some basic stuff. But maybe I'll just replace all of that with PT exercises that address yeah, this or, stuff. Yeah, or if you want to keep some of that up, it could be in conjunction. Um, okay. We would just want to make sure that you're getting appropriate firing of all those muscles and things don't feel tight like okay. they have to you in order to, cause I, I love overhead press. I think it's a great supplemental exercise. That's kind of one of my go-tos is, okay. as an always exercise. Um, but it will, so I've had a long history of right shoulder pain and it's likely that I have a little, little labral tear in there from what I've seen test wise in the past on me. But, um, when things are good, I feel the same thing. I feel that like I can go through that range of motion. I can push, I have no pain. But when things aren't, I notice that the compensation with those exercises, you're not gonna so much feel that because you don't have pain in your shoulder, but I would just wanna make sure, I mean, you could send me a quick video of like your posture with that exercise from the back and we could see what was firing, what was working. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I don't think, it, I think the more important thing is that in that time and maybe from now going forward that you really take on a mobility practice for your upper body mm. that's that's much more focused and rigorous. I mean, yoga comes to mind in terms of how you could kind of get your shoulders more open, your lats a little bit more stretched out, um, really focusing on pectoral stretching, which I've given you over a foam roller, lots of passive stretching for longer periods of time to encourage that lengthening of the tissues in the front of the body. Mm. I think that would be really valuable. 
Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So let's jump to like next spring. I mean, the, the question I'm getting to is, do you have any guidance for me on how to ramp back up to another sport climbing season here in Ten Sleep? You know, because I, I really like to boulder and sport climb and I kind of have been flitting between them over the last couple of years. And a lot of my sport climbing these days, I'm kind of focused on steeper climbing, which doesn't doesn't lead to the same symptoms. I think there's a number of reasons. For one, the volume's just lower. You know, when you're climbing in a cave, you just can't do as many pitches per day. And the pitches generally aren't as many moves and things like that. You're also not just cranking on tiny, tiny little holds. So I don't think I'm as fully occluded in the forearms and things aren't as tight sure. from that. Um, so yeah, I'm curious, like, do you think that was part of the problem over the last month? from when you saw me that first time to a month later, just ramping up the climbing volume too quickly, is that an issue? Or do you think that if we address all these things, I would be able to jump right back into a sport climbing trip here? Because the intensity is so much lower than what I'm used to. Like I don't really have a problem climbing five pitches, you know, two days in a row, but I guess I do if it's leading to this injury or to this uh, to these symptoms being exacerbated. So, so I, I think it's I think it's a little more simple than than you're thinking, and in, in that if through all the stuff that I just talked about, and then also a really dedicated neural mobilization practice, so really improving your upper limb tension and getting the the whole system to be more compliant. And also working on your wrist flexibility and forearm mo mobility and tissue extensibility there. Yeah. Like, and again, that's why I say yoga because I think, I think if you, if you're all in and you can really do some good overhead stretching and get the lats stretched out and then follow it with a really dedicated nerve flossing that's progressive, like you, you should see improvement as you go along through that. Then my hope would be that the whole peripheral nervous system would be calmed down and mobile to the point that those stresses wouldn't have the same effect in terms of trigger for symptoms. Got it. T time will tell, but mm -hmm. I, I, I think that volume wise, a graduated approach just makes sense. But I think that my, my hope would be that if you really dedicated to all those other things and came in with a slightly different body physically, mm -hmm. that, that that would be the, the key. Got it. I mean, and, and that makes sense to me because for people listening, I didn't just show up in 10 sleep and start going ham on day one. Like I did right. ease into the trip and yeah. um, have been kind of surprised that the symptoms came back as quickly as they did. Cause I felt like I was kind of taking my time yeah. doing some volume and doing some easy, you know, relatively easy for me pitches primarily for the first handful of weeks. So. Yeah. I think the underlying stuff was there. Okay. It just took, took a little while to rear its head. Got it. Got yeah. it. Okay. Anything else is for, like, if you're just going to give me the, the bullet points, like here's where I'm at now, here's how we get to me being where I want to be. Can you break it down in like the bullet points of how you would address a complex kind of multi-factorial issue, or I don't know, I don't even know what to call it, injury issue, like yeah, what I'm with, having. With yours specifically. Yeah. Is yeah. it? So it's, it sounds like it's first mobilizing, getting things moving mm -hmm. along with the nerve flossing and then starting to build some strength on top of that. And then starting to apply that on the climbing wall. Does it make sense to kind of break things out that way? Yeah. I think, I, I think 
It's as simple as that. I think the mobility first, I mean, that's a common thing that, that I like to focus on in any condition is that is the mobility there. Like a different example, somebody comes in and they have a shoulder pathology and we look at their shoulder and they've got a, what we call an internal rotation deficit. So people can test this easily by reaching one hand up the back and seeing how high up you can go up the spine and reaching the other hand up the back and reaching, seeing how far you can go. Oh, so that's they, another thing we should do. I have a big discrepancy actually. Yeah. One, one side to the other. Like if I try to reach behind me and touch my hands together, yeah, um, I can do it on one side and I'm like two or three inches apart on the other side. Yeah, so that may, may be part of the exam that we missed, um, but that would, it, it, this is a, a huge, it depends because you will have a little bit of more limited mobility on your dominant shoulder typically. Mm. And then if you've got a history of being a throwing athlete, that can really change things because we spend so uh. much time rearing back under load into external rotation that um, it's a little bit different for throwing athletes. But and I was anyhow, a pitcher. Oh, and you were a pitcher. Yeah. With your I was a baseball I was a baseball player, I was a pitcher and I was an outfielder, so I threw a lot. Okay. Right yeah. on. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. So Going back to the example, I'll have to think, yeah, being the different arm, we won't focus on that right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but going back to that example, if somebody comes in with what we call that internal rotation deficit, that inability to you know, get nearly as high up the back on one side versus the other, I would go after mobility first, but they're probably also gonna present with, um, just because of what that does posturally and how that sets up the head of the humerus and how it sits in the glenoid fossa, how, how everything's coupled there. That tightness often is accompanied by limited strength and a couple of different rotator cuff muscles. But in that example, I would go after mobility a bit first. I may isometrically load the muscle, but if we just go after strength first and then you're cranking on it and trying to get a lot of mobility out of it, it's oftentimes hard to get results as quickly because mm. you're tightening down tissue at the same time you're trying to open up tissue. Mm, I see. So I think that generalization of mobility first and then strengthening through mobility is a is a good principle. Okay. Yeah. How would you think about timing for me? So let's go back to this and hopefully this is a, you know relevant and, and useful for people listening, but let's go back to the Waco tanks example. If I focus on this over two months when I'm in Waco, does it make sense to have a bigger block of stretching and focusing on this stuff on rest days or should I try to do it after climbing? Would it be risky to do it before going climbing for the day? How would you think about timing with this stuff? Yeah, so if we're gonna do a lot of static stretching, um, there's a lot of evidence on this, but basically we shouldn't do it within probably about 45 minutes of really recruiting our muscles heavily. So. You know, the classic example that we've seen in the literature and clinically is like a hamstring tear. So people going and doing really static stretches for long periods of time and then going and sprinting as hard as they can, that's gonna increase your likelihood of having a soft tissue injury. So with that principle in mind, um, what I've been doing recently just for my own body that I've, I've really been impressed with the results, and this is born out of some of the folks I've been listening to on your podcast and and otherwise is that, if I can get a really deep stretching session in the morning and then have an hour or two before I get to the crag, 
and then I hike in and I kind of rewarm, but I've already gotten that joint mobility mm. and that extensibility in the tissue. It really carries over on the wall. Mm. And okay. um, like yesterday when we were kind of just waiting out the rain, I did a bunch of that. And um, that was not a prime example because we got there and it was like 40 degrees. And we were cold <laughs> all day and I felt super None stiff. None of us ever got warmed up. But a couple of days before <laughs> that, I had a really, a send I'm really excited about. And um, I had done that that morning and it was amazing how it felt to just like sit into some movements with having that little bit of extra range of motion. That one in particular, I needed a, a lot of right hip opening into external mm. rotation to pull this um, crux move off. And yeah, it was, I think it was one of the keys. So using that and thinking of you, I would try to, I would work on it for a little while, just every day a little bit. And then I would explore actually doing some deeper stretching in that same principle an hour or two before you go out and certainly doing your, no, the nerve mobilizations are just gonna be consistent. They're gonna be twice a day, Every at a day. really fixed volume, not increasing the volume, but increasing the range of motion you're working through. Okay. That's key. Um, but for the, the mobility aspect, I would encourage you to, yeah, get, the, get everything moving in the morning and then go out and use it. You know, mm. use it through all those range of motions. So you ingrain that mobility as a schema, as something your body accepts and it's like, oh wow, I can move through this new range of motion, in your case, through your shoulders. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. Awesome, man. Um, I don't want to spend too much more time on the carpal tunnel or on this specific stuff because I'm worried that um, I'm just being greedy with you and it's not going to be helpful for people listening. So. <laughs> well, we could actually, we should, we should just treat it and <laughs> fix it. And then you can have me back on and we can see if it actually worked. Awesome. That sounds <laughs> like a great idea. But yeah, I, I don't know if this is going to work. I, one, one of the things I was curious to explore with you is whether or not you see most common injuries with climbers. I mean, you focus most of your practice on helping climbers get back to sending again. I'm curious what are, if there are any most common issues that you come up against with climbers. And with that, if there are any things that we can do to be proactive as climbers. So for most of the people, most people listening, one question I had here is, are there any exercises or self-care practices that most climbers should be doing? Hmm. Um, is it fair to make those kind of generalizations or is it just really specific to the athlete? Yeah, so I, I think that in general, people should be doing some antagonist work. Like it's, we all kind of know that, I think. If you've been in the game a little bit for newer climbers, that's super important is just, just do some pushing because we do tons of pulling. Um, I think that, you know, I was trying to think of something that I, I felt was a little more unique um, when we, when you first mentioned this, because I, I could think about finger loading and, you know, those things too, and, and having a regular practice so that you can have not only just improvements in strength, but longevity. I find that um, people are injured less frequently if they're training properly. So I think having a well-rounded training program is really important. But the thing I think that I would encourage people to explore is having a, a rest day movement activity that allows them to just tap into what their body feels like on that day mm. so that they can explore what happened the day before, how their body and their tissue reacts. Um, if I use myself as an example, I really like, I, I do yoga daily and it's not a super long practice and I've got like specific movements that I do and they're kind of, they're really focused on just kind of getting me moving, but they're also focused on climbing and how my body feels. 
And I am really impressed day to day how that feels differently. And mm. on days after really hard, like weightlifting, we shouldn't be just stretching our tissue a ton. So I wanna make that caveat. You shouldn't just go and like hang on your tissue when it's sore from loading. But I think that doing some therapeutic movement and just kind of moving through ranges of motion and exploring what's tight, and then addressing those tightnesses when they come up. So I'll oftentimes just have a foam roller close to me or a trigger point ball and go right after the tissue that feels tight. So say I'm doing even a downward dog and I feel like something in my back or my lats isn't moving properly, then I'll work around on that a little bit on one of those tools and then I'll come back to it. Mm. And I think for me, it does a couple of things and, I, and I've heard this from folks that do it. It just gives them one, a chance on their rest days to feel like they're doing something proactive in terms of their recovery. So we all know that it's good to like go for a walk or maybe a light jog to get the blood flowing on recovery days. But I think you can make it a little more focused and intimate if you really get in touch with what frequently tightens up for you or frequently even doesn't tighten up for you. If you're like, wow, like I have so much mobility through my shoulders, like they never get sore and tired. I wonder how my pull strength is. Am I really using things the way I should be? Hmm. What's firing, what's activating? Um, for me, it's totally the opposite. It's just like stiff things all the time <laughs> that I'm like, oh man, that's, that's stiff again. I should work that out. But it goes a long way to maybe helping me recover faster, but also just having me feel like I'm being proactive and I've, and, I've, and I've got a say in how things recover rather than just kind of sitting and wait. That's great. There's a lot of yoga for climbing resources out there now. I have, um, I have not explored them. <laughs> um, do you have any opinions, any resources for people or opinions on where to go or, or what simple yoga poses to focus on that would oh, be great man. for climbers? Yeah, so like the salute to the sun or the sun salutation is like the only thing that I tell people to start with generally if they haven't been doing yoga because it's just like a really easy, simple movement. You can find that anywhere online and it's hard to do wrong. You know, there's not <laughs> a lot of complexity. It's very- You haven't straight, seen my down dog. Straight plane bad. movement. Is it bad? Oh, it's man. pretty bad. <laughs> no, okay. You're gonna, Mostly gonna my, my hamstring flexibility actually. It'd be really it's... awkward to do in here right now. Maybe like, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're sitting only like a few feet away from yeah, each other. So. Yeah. <laughs> and wrist though too. I, I find my wrist, I mean, probably just, it's like a- um, it's like a, you know, a snowball effect or something. I don't do yoga because my wrists are so tight. So I, I don't do yoga Dude, so they don't like get that, better. That's so. part of the prescription yeah, for you. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I really, you know, I think that, that that really resonates with everything else we're talking about for you is that there's there's a mobility issue in there. And perhaps, you know, you've talked on the podcast about the change in your body and how mm. much more muscle mass you put on over the last years. and. There, and I know you dealt with a carpal tunnel long ago, so this isn't the root. Yeah, I would love to use that as an excuse. Yeah. But I think my mobility has been pretty poor yeah, throughout. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it's something to go after, man. Yeah. Cool. I'm, I'm going to see the downward do dog today and we'll get back to <laughs> okay. everybody. But no, I'm, I'm very curious about that for you. But, but yeah, that touches on what I was just touching on, you know, like knowing where you're restricted and having a simple movement practice can, can really help with that. Specific resources I, I do not have. Although I will say, so I'm, I'm working on developing a webpage right now for a business I'm, I'm running and starting. And I would like to have that stuff embedded into the webpage, like free, easy access to some movement drills, just because mm. I think it's so important. So awesome. Yeah, stay tuned. Do you have your URL yet? 
Um, yeah, I bought my name. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so mattheiliger.com. Mattheiliger.com. Yeah. I'll I, be sure I, to link to it and yeah. keep everybody posted about your status with that. Yeah. Appreciate it, man. Of course. Um, this is amazing, dude. I have, okay, I have a handful of bullet points that are going to take us away from physical therapy. And uh, I think some fun things to chat about before we wrap up the conversation here. But before doing that, is there anything that we have touched on that deserves more time or anything that we missed that you want to hit on before we move on? I want to talk more about yeah. you and, and your life and your climbing and things <laughs> like that. That's where I'm headed. So Yeah, cool. Um, no, I, I feel pretty good about, about what we've gone through. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. Let me tell you about this morning. I woke up, I threw on a podcast, and the first thing I did was add a scoop of Athletic Greens to about 10 ounces of cold water. I shook it up and I sipped on that while I made my coffee and my breakfast this morning. It was great. It's super refreshing. It tastes really good. There's some fruit extracts and a little stevia in there to make it tasty. And I love it. I look forward to it every morning almost as much as that first cup of coffee. But in a lot of ways, it's even better than coffee. Here's why. One scoop of Athletic Greens has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. I think of it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I like to eat whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, but it can be really hard to get fresh fruits and veggies, not to mention organic, when you travel to some of these climbing areas. I just spent six weeks in Ten Sleep, Wyoming. It's really hard to get fresh produce there, and that's where Athletic Greens comes in. I know that if I take it in the morning, I'm covered for the day which is a great feeling to have. To make your decision easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com nugget. Again, that is athleticgreens.com nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Arcteryx. When Jordan Cannon, a young climber infatuated with climbing history, meets climbing legend Mark Hudon, a Yosemite big wall free climbing pioneer, they form an unlikely partnership around a common goal. Jordan wants to free climb the free rider on El Capitan in a day, and Mark hopes to free the route in as many days as it takes and accomplish his lifelong goal of free climbing El Capitan. Follow their story in Free As Can Be, a short climbing film brought to you by Arcteryx. I watched the film over the summer. It's 31 minutes long. It's so well done. It's a story of climbing partnership and adventure. And if you love this podcast, especially if you love the episodes about Yosemite and big wall free climbing on El Capitan, then I know you'll love the film. So check it out. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Once again, you can head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Arcteryx presents Free As Can Be, and we hope you enjoy the film. And now back to the show. Well, I want to hear um, about a few things. I want to hear about Spain. You mentioned uh, traveling to Spain with your family and living there for a year. So I think that'd be really interesting. But 
I have, I wanted to like kind of mix in some story time. You're such a good storyteller. And we've had some nights at the campfire where I'm just like, what the, like this guy, he told me this before the, the interview and I'm like, really? Like, I don't, I don't see myself that way, but. Well, we can let listeners decide for themselves. I mean, you already like shared the, the bear den on the property, which I thought was, that's just such a great, funny story. But um, I've got two more in front of me that you've already told me, but it's been a couple of weeks and I'd love to hear them again. Tell me the eye socket story. Oh man, the eyeball. Yeah. So you already mentioned telemarking and being a skier and climber. So yeah. And actually it all kind of it all kind of ties in. Um, but yeah, so what's gotten dubbed is the eyeball story with friends. Um, so super passionate skier in my early 20s, but I, I kind of blame my judgment on like not fully developing the frontal lobe yet, you know, like <laughs> just throttling a lot and using risky behaviors and judgments that were were maybe not the best, but I really enjoyed jumping off um, things on my skis, um, like cliffs. And I had a, <laughs> and it's funny now, man, because I'm like, I'm, I'm I don't know, I, I'm much more reserved these days on skis, but- um, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, like, yeah, just, survival, I actually, survival instinct. Not, know, to, but, not to derail you, but I actually got into telemarking. I telemark as well. Yeah. And I actually got into telemarking because me and a friend of mine were getting too into jumping off of things on our skis. Yeah, totally. So and because uh, it was getting story. boring. And, and then he hurt himself and actually uh, he had a really bad back injury and had to get back surgery and got addicted to pain meds. Oh, and sure. it totally changed his life. And yeah, he had wow. a completely different personality after that. And I mean, that wasn't entirely why I switched, but um, but yeah, that was like when I was like 19 years old and I was like, oh, I, I'm either going to take more risk to have more interest in skiing or I need to pivot to something new. And that's when I got into telemarking and yeah, so, yeah it was super fun. So yeah, this story could be like not only the eyeball story, but like why I sold all my Alpine gear. <laughs> um, Perfect. But, yeah, so I uh, I was skiing a lot. I was chasing winters. I actually spent that winter up in British Columbia so that I could go ski Rogers Pass. I don't know if you know of that area, but um, pretty, like probably the best access to backcountry skiing in North America. And so a uh, girlfriend at the time and I moved up there and with a buddy of mine, um, TK, Tyler Nauer from Colorado. And we just had a wild time of it and had a great winter and, um, but hadn't done a lot of resort skiing. Like we hadn't gotten a lot of really good resort days. So I was kind of tinkering around telemarking. That was my first winter, um, skiing. My boots were too small, feet froze. I still have frostbite from that experience. You still have we had, frostbite? We had, a, we had a stretch while we were up there that it didn't get above... 10 minus 10 degrees for 20 days <laughs> and nine of those days it didn't get above minus 20 i'm like thinking about the numbers oh man yeah it was freaking cold and we were living in a camper and oh uh, my god <laughs> crank i cannot the, imagine cranking that. the propane heater and we got so stir crazy that we just like started skiing again because we're like oh it's never gonna end this is canada i guess you know so we yeah so my toast froze but that's an aside <laughs> but um <laughs> We came back and I was broke after that winter and we went to um, crash at my parents' place in Tahoe for a little bit. And sure enough, like right after we got back, there was this huge dump and I had just enough money in the bank account and was kind of lining up work so that 
I'd be able to eat the rest of that week um, to buy a lift ticket. And so I, t- I went to Alpine Meadows, um, place I grew up skiing a fair bit. And uh, I it was a 48-inch dump in like, I think, 36 hours or something like that. So big spring Sierra dump. And great conditions, skied all over the mountain that day. Um, and by midday, I was kind of working my way to the base area. And there had been this thing I had been looking at. I had been jumping off smaller stuff all day. And there had been this thing I'd been looking at for a bunch of years. And I was like, oh, I'll traverse over there and go check that out. And got over there and um, got above it. And I was like, oh, shit, that's like quite a bit bigger than I was thinking. How big do you think it was? Um, so I, I actually went back this winter because I was like, dude, you're, you're like blowing this out of proportion in your mind. Like it probably gets bigger every year, you know? Right. And so I knew where it was. And so I skied over there. Our family was in Tahoe for the winter. Um, and I skied over there. And... It's like a th- the rock face, I think, is 30 feet, but with the snow load, the like takeoff and landing would be like 40 to 40, <sighs> 45, somewhere in there. That's very big. Um, so, yeah, like at the upper limit of what I was comfortable doing for sure, um, very upper limit. And so it's kind of funny. So I'm, I get down into it and I look at it and I'm like, oh, shit, that's like way bigger than I was thinking of going. And at the same time, I start like sidestepping around and it's kind of in a funnel. So to get back up and out of it, I couldn't just traverse out of it. You'd have to like go way back uphill and get around it. And I was like, dude, there's no way. There's like four feet of snow. I'm kind of just burying myself trying to stomp around. And so, you know, the <laughs> I just look at the line and I'm like, well, that's the fast way down. Uh, what, I, <laughs> what I didn't, and, and I really like, I didn't want to do it. I think at that point, I like, if I'm honest with myself, I didn't really want to do it, but I was like standing there being like, wow, the hell am I going to get out of this situation? And what I didn't realize is that at the base of the cliff, it had gotten a lot of solar radiation during the morning and the upper mountain had all been pretty cold snow, especially for the Sierra, but it was just baked at the base of it. And Mm. so it was like mashed potatoes underneath. Up on top, it didn't feel that way at all. Mm. And so I didn't anticipate that. And when I, when I dropped, I hit and I just like plugged, just like went straight into this mashed potatoes. And my knee, my head like flexed down forward, my spine flexed, and I just head butted my knee and came right into my face. And uh, it, it was so much force that it actually knocked me back on my feet. And I like half skied out of the thing. <laughs> and immediately like i'm just like oh dude that was not good like what broke you know and my eye my helmet my goggles got pushed up they somehow didn't break but they got pushed up across my face and kind of adjusted things a little bit and definitely felt like some dizziness and some stars kicking in and um and i was kind of off to the side like people would have seen me eventually but i was like i I should get over closer to like where help could get me and so i start skiing across on um just off piste and then I get back to a groomer and I'm skiing under a chair. And at that point I had seen like the big cross. I was like, ski patrol, that's where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Um, so you knew, get, you're, you knew you were messed up at that point? I, I knew I should at least get looked at, you know? Okay. Like I'm, I'm still like vertical at that point, but um, yeah, I just felt like, it, you know, that, there were stars. I was, I was sure I was concussed and I was hoping that was what it was, but I also couldn't see my face. Like I didn't know what mm. I looked like, you know? Um, there was no blood really. There was there was just a little, tiny little laceration. And so I uh, I started down the groomer and this is where I knew that I definitely was messed up a little bit. And I started skiing and I was just like teetering from one leg, like my other leg lifting off the snow. And then like, as I make the other turn, like I go on to my left leg and my right leg lifts off the snow and I'm just like, 
<sighs> must have looked like a goofball. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know if I looked like I was drunk or I was trying to do it or what, but I get down to ski patrol. Um, they check me out and evidently I passed all the tests in terms of their concussion screening and they offered me an ice pack and um, I was like, yeah, but I got a bad headache. Like, should I stick around? So I stuck around for a while and went and walked my dog around the parking lot for a little bit and finally kind of convinced myself I was okay enough. And I just kind of banged myself up and drove back to parents' place where I was staying. Nobody else was there. And um, I jump in the shower and I just sitting there under the water, kind of soothing myself and I blow my nose and I hear this like slurping sensation. I wonder how, uh, sensation. I wonder how that'll come out in the, the microphone. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but this like crazy like suction sound. And at the same time, my eyelid falls shut. This is my right eye. My eyelid falls shut and I can't see out of it. And so my vision naturally got a little blurry from just having one eye open. I jump out of the shower, just like freaking out, wondering what's going on. And you look at my face, like from my other eye, and there's just a flat spot where you'd normally see like a little, if you've got your eyes closed, your eyeball causes a little bit of like convexity coming out, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I pull my eyelid open because it naturally, I just can't open it. And my eyeballs like literally sucked back in the socket. And I'm just like, holy fuck, what did I do? And um, I'm just freaking out and I'm standing there like wet and naked and just like, oh God, like what is the next step? And so um, I'm telling myself off a little bit and I'm going to the phone to get the phone and call 911. And in that process, I actually start to feel a little bit of pressure against my eye. It was weird and I could feel it pushing on the back of my eye, like there was this deep sensation. And I'm like, well, shit, that's gonna be a really expensive ride. And I'm otherwise feeling just fine. Um, maybe, I, you know, it's like my stupid ass mind's like, maybe I should drive down. <laughs> and, uh, and my mom's a nurse and I call my mom and my mom's like, what the fuck are you doing calling? You know, she didn't say those words because she didn't say that, but <laughs> what are you doing calling me? And uh, it, this was like all over the course of like a minute and a half, two minutes. And um, she's like, call 911. Yeah, right call 911. Like I'm calling 911 and you better be calling 911 too. But in the process of this, like the swelling kicked in so fast and furious that it actually was pushing my eye back out. And Whoa. by the end of the conversation, like I had decent vision like you look i looked in the mirror and you could still see it's called enophthalmus when your eye is like sunken in and how far back was it sunken in do you think uh, man it'd be hard to say like yeah i don't know like i don't know physiologically uh, what it would take but yeah. like i don't know half a like half a centimeter centimeter. I, I really don't okay. know okay I've, I've always wondered that actually i've wanted to ask a doc i forgot to ask the doctor yeah I ended up having surgery with, so. We'll just say an Anyhow, inch. Yeah, an inch back <laughs> in my head. <laughs> but the crazy part, so it's called an orbital blowout fracture and the crazy an part orbital is orbital blowout fracture, Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, right, yeah, it's so. gotta be bad. <laughs> um, and if you like think of a, a skeleton and you think of the socket, what hadn't happened when I had the impact was that the blowout hadn't occurred yet, but there were a ton of micro fractures in the bone of my eye socket that attaches over to your nasal cavity. Mm. And basically like blowing my nose caused this like reverse, like suction negative pressure that ended up pulling those bones back into Jeez. me basically. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was freaky. Um, 
of course, like again, this this frontal load development in like early twenties. I I jump in my truck and drive to the ER because it's only like three or four minutes <laughs> to the ER, and I'm seeing perfectly like, not perfectly fine, but I'm seeing well enough at that point. Yeah, and I get in there and they do a, a CT scan on me and they bring in this this image and it's wild. It's like they measured it and it was about the size of a silver dollar is what they told me. What was? And you look at the hole, like, the hole in wow. the orbit of the eye. And um, Man. I'm figuring I'm like on my way to surgery immediately, but it turns out that these things are like relatively stable as long as you don't present with other symptoms. And my eye was, I was functioning okay at that point. So um, then became like the search for a surgeon and what to do next. And um, that part of the story is kind of boring and long, but I ended up having uh, surgery in Reno with a guy that specialized in boxing injuries. So I guess mm. the number one population for orbital blowouts is boxers. And it makes sense. Classically in Nevada, um, he had he had a good business built around that. Super <laughs> super eccentric physician or surgeon. He was he was a character, um, but he he did a great job. And a couple, it was like I had a I think a two week window where I had to have the surgery. And it actually, I went and got my eyes checked right before the surgery and I was back to 2020 and everything was looking good. And so wow. he left the decision up to me. He said that some people will not do it because their vision is okay and they're just not comfortable with the surgery. But what happens is the scar tissue that ends up filling that space will hook into your ocular muscles, like the little tendons of your ocular muscles. And basically over time you'll lose range of motion in your eye and it's not an always thing like there are some people that get away without it but that becomes a much more complex surgery of actually like debriding scar tissue around the eye socket and you're operating around the optic nerve so that's risky so anyhow i elected to have the surgery came out of the surgery you're basically guaranteed to have double vision for a period of like six to eight weeks and so Whoa. i couldn't do anything like i remember on day nine i walked out and like looked down the street like it was my first time out of the house and like you would have two heads right now like everything was doubled and kind of like blurry doubled too there'd mm. be like this hologram of you like sitting next to you <laughs> um but this the street like flipped 90 degrees and it was Whoa. sideways so your eyes are just tripped out they just do not know how to to focus and that becomes your rehabilitation like my rehabilitation was basically focusing on like the tip of a pencil right in front of my nose where i had a little bit of clarity and then you just slowly move like doing repetitions of moving the pencil and trying to track it with your eyes and it was really cool because like every few days all of a sudden it would be like a light switch flipped on and like bing i'd get like this new focal point that i didn't mm. have a few days ago so super rewarding like you, you, i mean you imagine like us as climbers and then like having a you know something you could do that was super beneficial every time you did it so i'm just like at home all day looking at a fucking pencil tip <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, but the end of the story is I sell my <laughs> Alpine gear. I'm just like, oh, that's a bad idea to put me back on those. Like, um, and I love skiing. I wasn't going to stop skiing, but I was really curious about telling. And turns out I ended up being even more passionate about tele skiing mm. than I ever was and, and became a much more, I think, skilled and proficient tele skier than I ever was an Alpine skier. But the other part of the story that ties back to climbing, which is kind of funny, is I was out months later. I got cleared, I think, at like three months to climb. I, f I can't remember the timeline exactly, but um, I'm out three or four months later and I'm climbing with a buddy and I'm up a ways off the deck and 
I'm going to clip a bolt and I was really sucked in, like hips in all the way, like one of those, you know, clips where you're kind of like all the way your head's even against the wall is like really over breath. my toes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm like just air swinging this quick draw at a bolt. And, you know, after a couple of swings out, my buddy's like, dude, what are you doing? Well, you're, you're trying to clip the quick draw to I'm just bolt. trying to clip, yeah, clip the quick draw to a bolt. And you're just like whiffing. Yeah, I'm just space. whiffing and like okay. my, my brain, and I couldn't like get my body turned. Well, I could, but I just didn't think to. I couldn't quite see what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. My buddy's yelling up and it turns out I had this like way up in the high periphery, like looking way up and right. I had this dead space where I still had the double vision. Whoa. And so I was like trying to clip the, the other thing. The hologram. <laughs> Trying to clip the hologram bolt. <laughs> and uh, wow. Quickly went back after that day to my PT exercises of like working on my peripheral vision. And sure enough, like it cleaned up and I can now see like through full range of motion. So wow. Yeah. Fascinating, man. I mean, yeah. that's just such a amazing story of what the body's capable of doing, of what modern medicine is capable of doing. It's just fascinating how complex oh, the brain is the fact that the street was flipped 90 degrees like that's so wild yeah it makes no sense yeah but... it is like the, the way our perception changes with when your eyes don't sync together hmm. yeah makes makes me really like cherish my vision that's for sure yeah came really close to losing it the the procedure was so close to the optic nerve that the doc he told me he's like you know, hopefully I'm not having an off day or like a sneeze or something. <laughs> you know, I'm like, dude, don't tell me that before surgery. He's like, cause like I could easily clip your optic nerve. <laughs> oh, and then, there's, oh <laughs> and then there's my dad. I remember I told you this part and you thought it was funny. My dad is like this amazing human. And uh, sorry, sorry to bash you here, dad, but this is so good. Um, <laughs> he, uh, my, we were like trying to, this is back when you rented movies at um, movie rental places, video stores. And so, uh, we were trying to figure out what to do the night before surgery. They came up and they were going to kind of support me through my recovery. And um, they come up and uh, my mom's like, Terry, go out and get a movie. Just get anything. Make it light and fun. So my dad goes down and he picks something and he comes back up and pops it in. And uh, sure enough, he had just heard good reviews. Like he had heard somewhere that this movie Ray was really oh good. Oh my God. <laughs> 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 and uh, <laughs> we sit down and it's about Ray Charles' life. And, oh man, my, my mom likes to this day to not let him down about <laughs> that selection. Uh, it's a good movie. <laughs> it's an amazing movie. One of the best. That's so funny. Yeah. Uh, this might be you, but I mean, yeah. you can always play the piano still. Right, yeah, exactly. Maybe he was thinking just like... <laughs> Backup plan. Yeah, backup plan in case that guy sneezes. That's <laughs> oh, that is hilarious. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks yeah. for story time. I knew oh, that would man. be. That was I, just... I've, I've gotten some serious mileage in the clinic with that one. Just, <laughs> I like, bet. Yeah, I bet. You don't want to have it be your first story, though, man. You get you get strange looks from like people sure. in terms of yeah, them trusting you. <laughs> And your judgment with their body. Right, right, right. But that's yeah. probably a great way to get um, hope as far as like buy-in and belief in clients. Like, yeah, yeah, you can explode your eye socket and still it's it's fine. Yeah, at least this so isn't that bad. You can come back from your slap tear, no problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's the big deal? Okay, let's uh, let's talk about Spain. I would love to hear, 
how that trip and how that idea to travel to Spain with your family came about. I, if I, I don't think I've actually um, heard the whole backstory. I know you had a um, a career working for a clinic and needed a break from that and took a sabbatical. But um, but yeah, tell me about that. How did you end up going to Spain with your family? And yeah, so we, uh, my wife and I, Liz, we had this. Um, just vision of traveling and, you know, for whatever reason, both of us, I think for different reasons, have always really loved the idea of, of travel, traveling in Spain. Something in the history and the culture and the landscape. And I think one of the key things is we've lived mainly and actually exclusively in cold climates like Tetons to Montana, basically is where we've been for a long time. So a lot of cold winters and we lived up on a mountain outside of Bozeman, beautiful, beautiful property, but we were up at 6,500 feet and that was snow plowing us in and out of our property. And there were a lot of logistics there and we were like, let's just simplify everything. And kind of like a, a little bit of a post COVID reaction, I think, like we need a big different thing to do. And also I was just in need of a, a break from the intensity of work and we couldn't see a path without kind of selling and switching things to, to do that. And it was just a great, we, we did really, we worked on our property a ton, did really well on it and decided to bank some of that money just for travel and adventure and this, this time to just kind of regroup as our, our family. And for me, I just, I was so excited with whatever we did just to have the time with the kids. Like it was hard working the long days. I worked for generally four tens, but they end up being longer than that. Um, and especially with where we were at, I was gone 12 hours a day and you kind of just barely catch them in the morning. And then, you know, story time was what I would do in the evening. We'd have like quick dinner and story time and then they're in bed. And so I just, I wanted something different and I wanted to just have a lot more time with my family. And that's what I've had for this last year. And it's been, it's been incredible. It's mm. been really, um, I don't know, healthy, rejuvenating. A lot, a lot of different ways to describe it. But um, in the midst of all this, we thought we were going to move to Spain for a full year. And we had looked into the immigration pathways to do that. And it looked like we'd be able to qualify for certain types of visas. But we had a couple different things kind of get thrown in the way. Um, I skied across my dog's Achilles last spring and he had to have a major reconstructive surgery. And we wanted to kind of see him through that and her repair, I should say, the uh, reattachment of the tendon. And we didn't want to take off at that time. And so anyhow, we we shortened our Spain adventure because we thought we were going to go right back. And that's kind of the, the quick story. We are back in Montana now because we realized that we ended up traveling for a bunch of months and there was fatigue involved. And our little ones were like, where are we going to school this year? Are we gonna be like abroad? Are we gonna be home? Where's home, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. um, but it was amazing for them. Like the, I'll talk about this, but the, the adaptability that created in them, I think is gonna go a long way mm. um, into the future. But in terms of our travels in Spain, we, uh, I've, I've always dreamed of deep water soloing and spending time in Mallorca and so, we went to Barcelona, did some time in the city there just for a few days to have that experience, which was really neat, actually. I loved Barcelona and we thought that we'd wanna like, get out of there as soon as possible. And then, yeah, so I had a bunch of time in Mallorca and then we bounced around to uh, Sierra and went up into the Pyrenees and had a couple other coastal adventures kind of in North uh, 
Mediterranean side, uh, north of Barcelona, this town Begur with some friends and bounced all around. And for us, we really wanted to see the countryside and small villages and just smaller places and, and experience that. And it was so neat, like everything from the experience of siesta and what that really means. Like we all think, oh, it's nap time. But in Spain, it's like things are really shut from two to five and it just happens. And you you kind of settle into a totally different schedule. It's really hard to change our schedule back when we got back because mm. all of a sudden, like with siesta in that part of the day, like you still want to go do all the things and like go out for tapas, but restaurants don't open till eight. And we just let our kids like slide into this late schedule with us. And that was super neat. Like we just did all these things together and ran with the schedule and they were really awesome about supporting me on some climbing adventures and we climbed a bunch of places. Um, and I love the plaza, like the, the little town square in any given town. If, if you, anybody out there travels in Spain, like go to some small villages and like go to the plaza right after siesta and mm. just watch it come alive. Cause that is a really special thing. And it's something that I like we don't have in the US, you know, mm, it was yeah. really strange coming back and we weren't there that long, but it was really strange coming back and not being able to experience that anywhere. Cause it, it had this whole sense of community and a gathering that's really unique and really, really special. Mm. So yeah, we love Spain. We, uh, we're hopefully going back. Like we might, we might be going back in the late winter. I'd like to get to some of the places in better conditions. And, um, we also just kind of want to feel out that idea of a year. And so we're in the, we're in the planning stages once again, like kind of circling about in the planning stages, calling Red Lodge home for, for this year and maybe beyond. We actually love it. It's a, it's a, it's actually the first place we've been to that we have had kind of a similar experience in terms of the warm welcome. Like we kind of figured moving over from Bozeman, Bozeman being like known in Montana. And I was like Bose Angeles with it blowing up and like, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. in, in the stigma that comes with we, in Montana, all your license plates are by your county. And so it's really easy to see where people are from. And so we didn't know what it would feel like, like just bumping over to Red Lodge and how we'd be received. It's a really small town, 2000 people. Um, and it's just been incredible. It's been arms open throughout the nice. community. and. Yeah, there's something really special about the little place, and so we're we're really enjoying it. That's awesome. We're see where that goes. Yeah. It's interesting about Spain. I, I wanted to ask if there. I wanted to ask what impact the trip had on you, and I'm I'm curious. Like you mentioned, the schedule and shifting, and how hard it was to switch back. It makes me wonder what you have brought back with you that's had some staying power, that's stuck, that's had like a lasting impact on you. And I kind of romanticize Spain too for similar reasons. I think. Just that really easygoing, relaxed way of life seems um, seems so appealing, and it also seems like such a potent antidote to so many of the things that are counter to our mental well-being here in America. You yeah. know, like I love America. I love the fact that I was able to start my own business, and no one has any say in that. You know, like I right. anyone can do that. Anyone can start their own thing and build their own thing, and that's what that's probably the best thing about our country, but, you know, with that, with our attitude and, and relationship with work and work culture and productivity and just being on all the time. I mean, obviously a lot of people, myself included, struggle with that, with the well-being aspect of that, because it's, it's just so, it can be so draining and it can be so easy to get wrapped up in it. 
so yeah, I have I have kind of like romanticized going to Spain and maybe seeking balance by going there, you know, being sure, exposed yeah. to a different culture, letting go of some of that just work, 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 yeah, produce totally. more all the time. Yeah, I mean, we 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 started to latch onto it um, as the you know the Spanish pipe dream, and um, you know maybe there would be an antidote in that, and it's it's a slower pace, absolutely, and because of that, the productivity doesn't appear to be very high. Like it's it, if you want to go get something fixed, it's probably not going to happen that day. Mm-hmm. You know, like because mm-hmm. yes, is not going to like just stop because of your, your issue or your thing. Um, and I really love that. Um, we've always been, my my wife and I trying to live a little bit slower life. And I think that's, that's one thing with work and life where we felt super, you know, almost, almost like we were out of control of that in Bozeman. And which is hard to say, because I loved my community and I loved my work and I, I missed that, sense of meaningful work that I'd have every day, but uh, I can't help but be drawn to a lot of the, the parts of Spanish culture and lifestyle that that we saw day in and day out and how outgoing people are and the the food, it, call, it all, it comes from right there, mm. you know? Like it's, it's amazing to like be in a place, and you can in the States too, but um, to be in a place where food is growing everywhere and mm. there's so much ability to just grow food and eat it right then and there. Um, but yeah, there, there is something in that pace and that slowing down and the um, the hours, you know, like to throw a siesta in a day, like you're working like four hours in the morning, maybe three in the evening is how they do it. And it would be a strange switch, like from our lifestyle of just kind of cranking until you're done. But um, people seem to function at a little, like, lower frequency there, you know. In a good way. In a good way. Yeah. Yeah, in a super good way. Yeah. And, and like, ever willing to, like, take the time just to stop mm. and be with you and sit and try to let you struggle through your, you know, use of the little Spanish that you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And... How are you thinking about work-life balance moving forward? I, I was curious to ask how you're thinking about your career in general, mm-hmm. um, being back in the States and having a home base again, whether you're, I mean, you talked about your website and wanting to build a business for yourself, I think. Um, but yeah, how are you thinking about work-life balance moving forward with that experience that you've brought home from Spain? Not just in time spent working, but like this is something I'm really curious about, selfishly curious about from a, you know, from a personal perspective that I can relate to is that for the first time in my life, I'm doing work that is really meaningful to me mm-hmm. and I really care about it. And work-life balance in the sense of time spent editing podcasts versus time spent climbing versus time spent with friends, that's really important. That's something I'm thinking about a lot. And I feel like I have a, a an amazing work-life balance. I feel super grateful for it the piece that I haven't quite dialed yet for myself is emotional energy. Mm-hmm. And I can really, yeah, that's just something I'm learning. I have to really guard because I love what I do and I love working on this thing. And it almost feels like, not even almost, it very much feels like a responsibility to me. Mm-hmm. Like I've had a very blessed and um, if I can use that word and, and very 
lucky life. You know, I've had a very easy life for the most part. And now I get this chance to share stories and share information that's going to potentially help a lot of people. And I almost feel like it's becoming upon me to do as much of that as I can and almost like burn the candle at both ends if when, if and whenever I can, um, so long as it's it's helpful, you know? Yeah, and I, I see that in you in a way, like I can tell that you bring a lot of care to your work and to your clients. And even with, I mean, not, e- not even, like especially the interactions that we've had, I can just tell that you're, you really care. You really care about me telling you about my carpal tunnel and trying to see if you can fix it. And um, I imagine that when you're seeing clients for 45 minutes, back to back to back all day and they all have these complex lives with their own stresses and emotional struggles and they're stressed about their injuries and stuff. I imagine that can be incredibly draining. Yeah. Um, so I'm yeah, so I, throwing a lot at you, but yeah, yeah how are you thinking about great, man. the balance I, uh, of all that moving forward? Well, well, first first off, I think that it's been cool to talk to you in person about this because I've learned just through listening to you the last couple of years on the podcast, about your journey and about your mission and about how much you know love essentially you put into your work and into your interactions with people and i think the term meaningful work has is really stood out to me as something um that i value from my work so far and that i need to find a new balance touching on the work-life balance part i need to find a new balance because I, I i think it's amazing how big your reaches and how many people you touch on a weekly basis and you know seeing the insides a little bit on what you're doing in terms of how you take your time in your day when you know taylor and i are getting out climbing like you're you're cranking away and, and getting your work done it's really impressive how you balance it all and have carved out this niche so you can travel and live like that and so i've been inspired by that in a sense and inspired by a couple other folks I know that have broken away and just started their own coaching businesses. And for now, I'm trying to figure out the best way to give people my attention and the use of the skills that I've developed while also giving us the opportunity to be flexible in our lifestyle. And you talked about the 45 minute constraint. I have been doing remote PT with people over the course of this year, not a lot of it, um, but enough to keep me kind of, you know, excited. And I love that I can take more time and just naturally with not having the overhead of having the clinic space. And there are unquestionably limitations to it, um, but being able to take more time with folks and being dedicated to really in-depth specific programming for the individual is what I'm really excited about. Because it's hard when you see 13 people, 45 minutes for it not to be a bit of, like not a bit of a blur, like a big blur. Sure. You know, like yeah, trying to imagine. track all that and then trying to come up with individualized programs that are really specific to their condition and then do that day in and day out forever. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of PT burnout um, and I get it. And I was a bit burnt out myself, even though I, I really miss a lot of the parts of the practice that would, you know, be, uh, w- would be more born from the in-person experience. So what I'm excited to build is something where I can take more time and feel that I'm giving a lot of value for the time and the cost to the patient. I'd like to integrate skills that I've developed with lots of observation. So 
uh, in Bozeman, I was so fortunate to have uh, such a, a big following, you know, essentially that was the PT climbing dude. Um, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it was an honor. And I would see, you know, at times up to 10, 12 patients a day that were climbers. And so I feel like I was able to get a volume that's pretty unique, you know, to just have that that much contact time with patients. And so I've been working on integrating that remotely with like more specific movement um, assessments that I will run people through. And what I'd like to do is make it even a step more efficient. And when I'm looking at things like loading, I have people do some capacity testing before they even have their call with me. Um, But essentially I wanna build a business that has, that puts the patient first, that has the interest in really focusing on specific programs that allow people to not just kind of work on their injuries, but train through their injuries. I've got some experience in the coaching realm, just kind of naturally through programming for folks. And I don't want to just be a coach um, by any means, because there's a lot of folks that know a lot more about tactics and all the the skills-based stuff. But I think where I can really help folks is combining all the assessment skills, the movement assessments, finding the holes in their game and coupling that all into a package that treats the whole person. And yeah, trying to, I mean, the reason I got into this all was like, you know, like you, there's a little bit of of selfishness. Like I I wanna learn more because I wanna be hurt less. And I think (laughs) I have over the years, Mm. learned to deal with, you know, my own injuries in a a more efficient way. And uh, it's such a joy to see somebody, you know, like, like Taylor, but like a lot of folks I've worked with, to see them come back back in with that like joy, that smile on their face, that like, yeah, like we've got this and I'm like crushing it now and my body feels good and I feel more durable, mm. like all of that. I don't, I can't count the number of times that she said that she wouldn't be the climber that she was if it weren't for you. Like, uh-huh. no. Yeah, she, she really, <clears throat> I know she tells you too directly to your face, but she really appreciates you and the yeah. work that you've done for her. And it's it's made all the difference for her and yeah. her climbing. So uh, thanks, Taylor. That gives me gives me chills a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also freezing in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm facing the temperature thing. We've lost thir- 12, 13 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be temps out there today. Yeah, when totally. Climbing. It's gonna be great. Well, that's that's awesome, man. <laughs> what do you envision? What do you envision for your practice? Are you envisioning having a hands-on practice with a physical space where you see clients or is this gonna be mostly a remote online thing moving forward? Yeah, so for for now I am gonna do remote and that's based on kind of our circumstances and the flexibility I want for my life kind of as I reintroduce more patient care. So, and and I've just enjoyed it like, I don't wanna be strictly remote, but I've enjoyed the interactions I can have by taking longer calls with folks and running them through a lot of things. And again, not having that overhead. The The vision long-term is, is based on kind of if we settle in Red Lodge, how much connection I have back to the Bozeman climbing community, because it's tough that they're like right there and I, I miss interacting with them. So how far is it? Uh, it's two hours, yeah. So a little bit of the dream is to, or a big part of the dream long-term would be to have a small training center and have something where I had all I need, a table and some tools and a training space and a really geeky movement analysis area and bring that all into a package that I think would be really, really cool. Yeah, um, it sounds awesome. Yeah, and in the time being, like that, this is gonna be a little ways out because 
we're just settling into a new community and seeing how it fits. Um, so in the time being, I am available remotely. I, I've got some things right ahead of me. I'm actually having a surgery in three weeks. You've heard a bunch about this, but I had a hernia repair a year and a half ago. And unfortunately, seven months into it, it failed. Mm. And so I, so we could go to Spain. That was another reason we came back actually was that I, I need to get this thing fixed. And um, for a variety of reasons, it's easier to do here, but um, yeah, gonna get, gonna get that done in three weeks, kind of be laid up for a little bit, but it, it's a time I've been kind of pushing back knowing that it was a good time for business development. So um, yeah, like I said, I'm treating a few few folks right now. I'm happy to, to take on more folks um, as time goes on and kind of gradually grow this thing, so. How can people connect with you for those listening that are enjoying this conversation and want to work with you? Where yeah, can, that, where can that, they find you that on made the internet? It this far? Um, yeah. So yeah, so for right now, mattheiliger.com. Um, you can spell it out, I guess, in the show notes. Um, mm -hmm. I'll link to it. Yeah, that would be awesome. But um, in the in the coming weeks, we'll have a little bit more of a platform there, which will just basically bump you over to me um, for a variety of reasons. I've decided not to to take the plunge into social media for the time being, or at least not not with the standard stuff. So I am very excited to do blog and education things and I'll probably start bouncing around to some gyms and doing some talks, things that kind of helped me organically grow my business in the past. Um, I'm looking at getting multi-state licensure. So I hope to be in a lot of the Western climbing states, have the ability to, to do physical therapy and um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the plan. Awesome. And I promised people this at the beginning of this episode, but for those who, I, I don't know, either you get inundated with requests and don't have the bandwidth to help everybody that's listening to this that wants help or someone wants to work with someone locally, mm -hmm. any thoughts, any tips on helping people find a good physical therapist? Yeah. So what to um, look for? Uh, it is impressive, like what, PTs these days go through in terms of education. So any, most anyone you see who's coming out of, well, certainly now coming out of a program is gonna have a doctorate in physical therapy. Um, and you can, there, there's so many good PTs all over the place. That said, looking for certain acronyms behind their name. So OCS is Orthopedic Certified Specialist, SES, Sports Certified Specialist. Those are two that mean that somebody's gone through more advanced testing. So they've, they've studied and taken written examination that basically has, um, means they've kind of, you have to go through several years to kind of get the, the depth to then go through that examination. Kind of what I would consider the next level for manual therapy would be looking for acronyms uh, CMPT or COMT those indicate that you've gotten a certification in advanced manual therapy skills. So especially if you're looking for somebody who has the, the ability to do advanced spinal manipulation techniques, that is, is definitely something I would look for. And then folks that have really dedicated themselves and gone the distance, there's, oh, I'm gonna mess it up, F-A-O-M-P-T. I might've messed that up, but it's a fellowship. So if there's an F on the end of a, a long set of letters, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that, that means they've been fellowship trained through not only the advanced certica certifications I just mentioned, but they actually are doing direct contact with a fellow and training under a fellow. So that's where you get into 
kind of the more advanced certifications and folks that have gone beyond. But again, like you're going to get a pretty good PT if you see a doctorate, but years of experience is really hard to know when you, when you look somebody mm. up and, you know, marketing wise, that's tough to find out. So I think for, for climbers, there are more people in gyms these days. Like that's becoming a, a bigger thing is having climbing PTs attached to a gym. So that at least gives you the volume with climbing injuries that, mm. you know, it takes to kind of know a little bit more intimately from a, from a climbing perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. That's yeah. super helpful. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's wrap up with this, man. I want to hear a little bit more about your own climbing and then uh, we should actually go climbing. <laughs> <laughs> we get to go climbing today. <laughs> yeah. What are you yeah, excited sweet. about in your own climbing right now? It's It's been really fun just in the few weekends that you've come down here to see, I don't know if I would say your progression, but um, it sounds like you had a goal to do a dozen 512s before your surgery and I've seen you tick off a bunch of them and, that, and that's been awesome to see. And it sounds like you just did your hardest route potentially back in Montana. Yeah, something I, I left there. Um, yeah, so I, I picked kind of the random goal. I got it from Carly actually, um, who you had on the podcast, Carly Rager. But a, a long while back I was working with her and she had mentioned that goal. And so it was sitting in the back of my mind. So I wanted to, I've, I've, I've it's not a new goal, but I wanted just between the last month, like this last month, have a goal of climbing uh, 12-12s. And yeah, I'm on my way. I'm kind of ticking away. I think it can happen in the next few weeks. Nice. Um, got a lot more power endurance building, it seems, than I've had in quite some time and capacity in general. Um, with my own climbing, man, it uh, I've been working around this hernia for a while, mm. and then I actually had my my worst pulley injury. I've never really had had a full grade two before. I've had some soreness, but um, I dealt with that back to back, like within the same week last winter, and it was really unfortunate because it was at the beginning of you know my sabbatical, my time to just mm. like go train and go crazy, and then come out. I was like listening to your stuff like crazy, and I was just like so fired up on like had my training plan written out the whole deal and had to fully derail it. Um, so it's been a little bit of a tough year, but Spain was just awesome. Like I climbed volume, I just did fun stuff with the family. But then coming here a little while ago, I was like, oh man, the countdown to surgery is on. I'm hanging out with you guys. And it was really inspiring, man. Just like seeing even your, all the tactics, you know, like we're out there with laser pointers and thermometers <laughs> and like all this really geeky stuff that's super neat to be exposed to. And so learning some more of those tactics, I, I am excited to explore the world of performance climbing. I've kind of always kept myself at this like ceiling of 12B and haven't really tried much beyond that. And just in my time here in Tensleep, I've been nudging that way further and in some other areas too. And I did this uh, this 12B back in Bozeman that I left hanging last year that I had had a really awesome experience on right before I left town, but it, it just, I, I blew it right after the crux, yeah, right at the crux. And uh, yeah, just a couple of days ago, it went down pretty easy, man. Like nice. it, felt, it felt so different than it did a year ago. And that's with a hernia that's like definitely affecting my my ability to engage my core. So yeah, what I'm excited about going forward, I'm excited just to have climbing continue to be part of my life, keep nudging it a little bit if I can and having it be a wholesome activity for my family and fit in somewhere in my life where it, it continues to give me all the things that it's given without um, creating too much anxiety and obsession about it. I think that mm -hmm. the, the work-life balance question, you know, like if I latch on too hard to it, 
it, the anxiety builds and it, I'm just fighting, you know, mm -hmm. fighting against life. And I think that, you know, creating that balance and, and knowing when it's time to perform and the, the seasons where it works for the family and knowing when it's time to kind of just get on the hangboard frequently when I can and be present for the family. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the life lesson so far. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So important. And, and you're not asking my opinion, but I mean, from my perspective, just watching you climb for the last handful of weekends and watching you put down half a dozen 512s when you've been here and hearing you talk about having this mindset of feeling like 12B was your ceiling for a long time and trying to break out of that. I mean, it's funny. I even had a conversation with Taylor about this and she's much more educated and, and perceptive as far as coaching and watching people and, and perceiving what they're capable of than I am. But we both felt like, oh yeah, like if you want to climb 12C or 12D or 13A, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of spending a little bit more time on more of those routes. And I don't think it would even necessitate obsession. You know, I think you'd sure. be able to maintain that work-life balance and have that quality time with your family. And, but I, I think you're, I think you're there actually. You know, no, noticing like Taylor, Taylor's kind of called me out on that. He's like, <laughs> Dude, have you even tried them? I'm like, well, no. totally. I mean, it's such a common, <laughs> it's such a common thing because I, I know that you know the twelve Bs that you've done haven't felt easy, and yep. in fact, I'm sure they felt quite hard. And so, it's hard to believe that you're capable of something a few grades harder than that. But all the ones I've seen you do have been like two to four tries, maybe. Sure. So imagine what would happen if you spent ten tries on something. You know, yeah. it's it's and, a really and to answer your question. I, I think that. That is something that I'm I'm definitely planning into next year is like nice digging into something that's inspiring. That no, no, I now live two and a half hours from Ten Sleep, so I could pick something down here. There's a lot of great climbing in the Beartooth around where we're at. Lander's not that far, so looking for something that I can kind of tie into for you know if it's multiple seasons, awesome. But something that requires a lot more of me and my dedication to a route and all the tactics and all that stuff. Like I had to put together enough in terms of beta on this last thing and it had to all work out just right. That that felt so neat when it came together. Mm. Like, you know, you know that feeling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it can, you can do both. I think that's a cool thing that gets, that's fun to realize and that gets missed maybe by a lot of people because projecting gets so, um, we romanticize it so much now and it gets talked about so much by pro climbers. Mm. I think a lot of newer climbers will just think, oh, I have to just project if I ever want to climb, you know, my first 12C or my first 13A or whatever it is. But you can have a long-term investment in a project and be slowly learning it and chipping away at it and be continuing to build your base and, you know, keep working on this 512 goal that you have concurrently. And I think those two things they can really help each other rather yeah. than taking away. It can be really keep things fun, keep the motivation high. It's a nice change of pace and you'll keep building those execution and tactical skills that you can apply to the hard thing. Yeah. So Psyched. excited for you. Psyched, man. <laughs> thank you for doing this, man. Yeah. Oh, thank and you. Thanks for, was... thanks for all the help. I mean, I, I really appreciate you taking the time with me and um, yeah, I just feel like I've gotten invaluable free advice and help from Matt. And it's, it's gonna, I can tell that like, just the discovery that you're helping me find as far as like the root cause of what's going on for me, it's gonna be so helpful moving forward to actually 
you know, fix myself. I don't know if it, if that's the best language to use, but anyway, I'll, I'm, I'm rambling. Yeah, I just, cool. I no, really I'm, appreciate I'm excited it. to hear how it goes and I, and I, and I hope it's helpful, man. I hope it's helpful. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will be. And I'm excited yeah. to keep working with you and I'll actually start paying you for your services because no. I want to support you too and your business. <laughs> but yeah, um, let's go climbing. Yeah, sounds good, man. Let's get out there. All right. Sweet. For everyone listening, thanks for sticking with us to the very end. And I will be sure to link to all things Matt, can you pronounce your last name for me? Heiliger. Heiliger. Yeah, I don't think I've spelled, ever said your spelled, last name Yeah, before. no, and it's spelled funny. It's, okay. yeah, it's hard to pronounce from looking at it. So. Well, it's easy to pronounce, easy, uh, difficult to onset. Difficult to onset. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I will link to all things Matt Heiliger in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. I think that's just going to be his website for now. But if he has any other resources that he thinks we should share, then I'll be sure to link to those as well. Thanks again for listening, you guys. Hopefully something in there was helpful. Hope you guys are having an amazing week. Best of luck with your own climbing and we'll see you next time. Hey friends, before you go, don't forget to check out Rhino Skin Solutions. Whether you have dry, glassy skin or sweaty skin and have trouble keeping chalk on your hands like I do, Rhino Skin Solutions has products that are designed just for you and your skin type. Check them out at rhinoskinsolutions.com and use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. Also, don't forget to check out the Grasshopper Board. The Grasshopper Board truly is my favorite of all of the boards and the one that I plan to purchase for my own house someday once I'm ready to take a break from van life. It's awesome. So if you've been thinking about buying a board, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com to check this thing out. Also, don't forget to check out the Arcteryx film, Free As Can Be. I watched it over the summer. I loved it. And if you love climbing, especially if you love trad climbing or big wall climbing, I'm sure you'll dig it too. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. And finally, last but certainly not least, be sure to check out Athletic Greens. I truly am a fan of this stuff. I've been taking it every day for at least a year now. And in fact, I'm a little bit sick right now. And so I've been taking it twice a day and it's definitely helped me get over this little bug, this little cold bug that I have more quickly. It's refreshing, it tastes good, and it provides awesome all-in-one nutritional insurance. If you want to try it out, head over to athleticgreens.com slash nugget to get some free vitamin D and five free travel packs with your purchase. And that is it, my friends. Thank you for listening to the very end. I appreciate you guys, as always, for tuning in. Have an amazing week and we will see you next time. Like we do it, 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 like we do it